Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, uh, just hanging out in Kodiak, Alaska. Um, pretty cool place. It's kind of cold for a guy from South Georgia, but uh, I was just listening to the podcast you just did with uh, Rogan, October 23rd, maybe. Uh, and you said something about being so high the first time you're on a show and fucking up and everything. And, I just, uh, I had to say, dude, that that was when I looked up your podcast, whenever I heard you on with him, uh, and it's been awesome, so all I had to say, just uh, keep being you, it's been great. This is Aaron. And Emily. We're on a road trip currently in southern Colorado. Our journey began together in Salt Lake City when I flew in from Milwaukee to meet Emily, who had driven down from Washington. Uh, the path took us down to Zion National Park, Bryce Canyon, a pit stop at Capitol Reef, into Moab, out to Canyonlands, and then back into Arches National Park. From there, we made the decision to detour to Crestone, Colorado, where we just spent two nights and learned a lot more about the incredibly unique and special place that this is. Uh, we're right now wrapping up our journey at the park in Crestone, enjoying some wood-fired pizza courtesy of Seth the Pizza Guy before embarking on an 18-hour trek back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, and yet the most special part of this amazing trip is, is yet to come. Uh, although this is the third trip of its kind for Emily and I, it's the first we'll be in which we'll be returning back home together. So hopefully the journey is just beginning. Anyway, Chris, we'll wrap this up with a big thank you. And like all the rest of the tangentially speaking listeners, we're excited to hear from you again soon. Travel safe. Hi, Chris. This is Kelly speaking to you from Wailuku, Maui. Um, I just wanted to thank you because... Um, my soulmate, Katie Larkin, who lives in Gold Coast, Australia, and her partner in crime, John Mason, introduced me to your podcast a couple of years ago. Um, and it's it's been part of our friendship and part of our love for each other. We speak about your podcasts in voice memos back and forth to each other regularly because the time difference just sucks for us. So rather than speaking face-to-face -face over... Uh, whatever one of these video apps we tend to write each other uh these little text memos or record them for one another and it's just really interesting i listen to you every morning and sometimes i really don't like what i hear and sometimes i love what i hear and she and i uh remark on it all the time so thank you for being a part of our friendship uh thank you kelly i'm pleased to be part of your friendship and uh, I'm glad to keep listening, even though sometimes you hear things that you fucking hate. That's uh, that's cool. I mean, there's so many options. There's so much content out there that it says something. Um, it, it says something really positive about someone who doesn't just change the channel the minute they hear something that they don't like. Um, so sincerely. I do appreciate that in the sense that I, uh, I admire it.
I think it's uh, it's fucking cool. Um, th- and also thank you, Guy and Kodiak, and Aaron and Emily uh, in Crestone. Those um, <clears throat> Aaron and Emily, especially, I think that came in o- over the summer, and uh, so sometimes I play these months after I get them. So you you know people be like, yeah, we're on a road trip and it's really warm, and you're like, what? It's fucking February. Uh, but, uh, it was funny that jet going over cause I almost never hear jet noise in Creston. It's one of the quietest places I've ever been. So that was ironic. Um, Hey, thank you. Everybody who sends these in, who sends me emails, um, who just does awesome shit that sometimes comes to my attention and most of the time never does. Um, couple examples of things that have come to my attention around the end of uh, the year, a couple months ago, my sister uh, sent me an email and said, hey, do you know who this person is? And I said, no. And she said, well, whoever it is just donated $5,000 to Stepping Forward LA, which if you heard the episode I did with my sister is the nonprofit that she started and and runs um, helping kids who are transitioning out of foster care. Um, you know, really many of whom have no life skills. And so she has this uh, program that uh, helps kids deal with job interviews and putting together a resume and uh, how to find an apartment and how to buy a car and how to deal with insurance and just how to sort of land on their feet. Um, Because, you know, they're 18 years old and the state is like, okay, you know, we're done. Good luck to you. We're not paying your bills anymore. Go have a good life. Don't get in trouble. <laughs> what a world. What a country. Um, so she saw this need. She was working at other um, nonprofits for years. Her passion is helping young people. And um, she got, I think she got frustrated working for other people and with the sort of lack of urgency that she encountered and the the lack of professionalism because she came from a background working in tech and making lots of money and, you know, working really hard. And, uh, and that's the way she approaches things unlike her big brother. But anyway, the point is that someone sent 5,000 bucks to, to her organization. And she thought maybe it was someone who listens to the podcast. And, uh, I looked in the um, on my website, there I guess you can look up who contributes. You know who's in the the Chris Club, as we very tackily called it. And yep, this name matched this woman who contributes. I don't know five ten bucks a month or something to the podcast. Sent five thousand bucks to my sister. Didn't even tell me about it. Didn't mention it. Wasn't doing it to you know obviously. Um. You know, wasn't doing it for me. It was doing it. She was doing it for Beth and to help Beth with the cause. And I just, I'm not going to say her name. I don't want to embarrass her or, or call attention to her if, you know, that's not what she wants, but it's fucking beautiful. Another example of that, um, a few episodes back, um, Deborah Kopakin, I think I always forget how I, Kopakin, Kopakin, Kopakin. Anyway, she was, um, talking about how, Messed up it is that, um, you know, hearing aids in the United States cost thousands of dollars and she had lost 
um, about half of her hearing. When she was in Afghanistan, she told the story. She was with the Mujahideen, um, and they apparently got pissed off that she was a very good shot uh, and like won a shooting game that they were playing. And so they blew up a, a little bomb near her. And um, not to kill her, but the the uh, concussion of the grenade or the bomb or whatever it was fucked up her hearing. And now 20, 25 years later, um, she's got some serious hearing loss. And she was talking about how it's super expensive and, you know, it's, it, it's hard to pay for it because, you know, she's you know, financially, she's, she's got a lot of stuff going on. Anyway, the point is somebody wrote to me and said, um, this guy who owns some uh, cannabis companies. And he said, uh, Hey, uh, I just listened to that episode and, um, sounds like she's, you know, having some trouble covering the costs of her hearing aid. I'd like to pay for it. I don't need to see a receipt, whatever, just, I just want to pay for it. And, um, I don't know what happened. I forwarded his email on to Deborah. So I don't know if she took him up on it or, um, but the point is, it doesn't fucking matter. It's just there are really cool people out there. And it's not about, you know, having the money. These people happen to have some extra money and, and other people don't have money, but they still find ways to to help. And there are so many ways to help that don't require a penny. So thank you for everyone who's doing that. And a big shout out to you for putting some love out into the world. Um, let's see. A couple of things I wanted to cover with you before I get into this episode, which is a good one. This is a guy named Niles Heckman, and he's got um, he's a documentarian, uh, writer. He, he does uh, spoken word essays on his website. He's a really, really interesting cat. Um, and I kind of... As I say to him, I was a little hesitant to do this episode because the way that I was introduced to his work was through a TV series that he's involved with called, um, uh, what is it called? Shamans of the, of the Global Village, I think. Um, and I, so I, I sort of came at it with this assumption that this was going to be a lot of kind of, uh, you know, this whole phenomenon of these instant shamans in Topanga and Joshua Tree. And uh, yeah, I know a lot of these people who are, you know, for the most part, pretty well-intentioned, I think, but they see money in this sort of entheogenic uh, revolution that's going on, this psychedelic second wave that's coming through. And there are a lot of people who are trying to ride that wave to the bank. And, you know, I have to fess up that I kind of resisted this because I thought, yeah, you know, this is one of these guys taking advantage of this. Um, but anyway, I, I watched the first episode of the show, which is about peyote and it's actually really well done. And, um, and then when the minute we started talking, I realized I was totally wrong and that I'm a douchebag and that this is a really cool guy and a really 
kind, sweet person who's not the least bit um, trying to cash in on this psychedelic craze. Um, so it's an excellent episode, I, and I'm really happy that I overcame my douchebaggery to bring it to you. Uh, a couple of things I, I wanted to tell you about. First of all, uh, I'm putting together a uh, aroma that should be out in the next few days, um, which is going to be largely about my response to a book called The Way of the Superior Man by, I think it's Daniel Deida, which several people have asked me to read over the last few years. So I did read it. I finally got around to reading it, and I want to talk about it and some of the things that uh, that it uh, brings to mind. It's a book about, obviously, how to be a superior man, uh, how to deal with women, uh, relationships, all these sorts of things, which are themes that uh, run through this podcast and, and my thinking and writing in general. But uh, I want to get sort of more explicitly focused on that. So that's coming up soon. Stay tuned. Um, and I wanted to also tell you why you haven't heard from me in a while. I, I took a sort of a spontaneous road trip to L.A. Uh, about 10 days ago. Decided it was time to go see my mom and um, and grab the stuff that I had in storage there. Um, in LA and also do some work with Oliver. He had some time to work on the van. And uh, so we, it's always so great to hang out with Oliver and work on the van. We rewired the electrical system and put in this uh, shelf in the back. So I've got a Traeger little smoker that I take on the road and it's heavy. It's like 80 pounds when it's full of pellets and everything. And um, so we put this uh, like a, a shelf that on on sliders that slides out so I don't have to like lean in and pull it around and you know put out my back I'm getting old I gotta be careful with my back but anyway I listened to it's, it's like a 17 hour drive each way I went by myself and I listened to a lot of podcasts so I thought I'd recommend a couple of them to you there's one called Broken Record which is um, a co-production of uh, Malcolm Gladwell the New Yorker writer and Rick Rubin who is uh, sort of a legendary musical producer. He's actually a good friend of Neil Strauss. And Neil invited me to go hiking with him and Rick one time. And I, for some reason, I couldn't go. And it's like, a, that's a big fuck up because I should have really taken advantage of that opportunity to meet Rick Rubin. He's, uh, he produced a bunch of Red Hot Chili Pepper albums. I think he, he was... Um, Oh, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I should really do more research. I think he was one of the Backstreet Boys, is that right? I mean, a lot of people are going, dude. Um, anyway, he was uh, in, a, in a rap group. Um, see, I should really just pause and look this up, shouldn't I? See, I mean, that, this is the difference between this podcast and real professional podcast. Uh, Rick Rubin, he was with the Beastie Boys, not the Backstreet Boys. Come on, man. The Beastie Boys. And he co-founded Def Jam Records with Russell Simmons, who I met in Bali. Have I ever told you that story about sitting down with Russell Simmons in Bali? That was a weird experience. Um, 
anyway, so he uh, he's he's an amazing guy. You know, very central to the uh, sort of musical world. He he produced um, some Tom Petty records, uh, which are really interesting. So he did um, a podcast. Rick Rubin is one of the hosts. He did the podcast uh, episode with Tom Petty's daughter. Adria, if you are into Tom Petty, I really recommend you listen to that. That's an amazing conversation. Um, not just about his music and his life, but I mean, his daughter growing up in that world, being on tour and hanging out with Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan, you know, when she was a little girl and they were like dad's friends, you know. Um, another amazing episode is the conversation with Bruce Springsteen. Who I'm kind of down on at the moment uh, because of his commercial. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl, but there was this Jeep commercial where Bruce Springsteen is selling Jeeps, but talking about, you know, America and posing in his jeans and drinking a cup of coffee in a diner in the desert, you know, doing that whole thing. And um, for a guy who, who has resisted selling out his whole life, it, it was kind of a pathetic sellout in my perspective, from my perspective, in my opinion. Um, but Bruce Springsteen's such an interesting character because he is a character. He is a, an act. And, um, and he freely admits that if you saw his one-man show on Netflix, it's about how he has never worked in a factory. He's never had a job, in fact. His whole life he's been making money playing music. And the voice of his characters that he sings through in his songs, which if you know his music, you know it's a very working class, um, down on your luck, you know, they shut down the factory, now I don't have a job, my woman's left me, you know, it's like a real hard luck American kind of experience, which Bruce himself has never had, but his father had it. So he's channeling his father and, uh, and he's a fraud, you know, as a character, the guy on stage is not the guy off stage. Um, so it's, it's enigmatic, you know, to, to hear someone say, you know, that's a character I play where most of his audience thinks that's him. Of course, it's really interesting. And then there was another interview, same podcast, uh, it's called broken record again with Joe Henry. I've played some of Joe Henry's songs for you on this podcast. He's one of my favorite singer songwriters. And Joe Henry says at one point that um, some guy took him aside at a party when he was young and uh, he said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is that you haven't developed an onstage persona. And Joe's like, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. What do you mean? And the guy's like, you need to have a look. You need to have an attitude and it needs to be consistent. And Joe is like, yeah, I never did that. And he's probably right. You know, if I had, you know, think about Tom Waits. When do you ever see Tom Waits when he's not being Tom Waits? But that Tom Waits that you see is not the guy. That's a character that he's put together that he in, inhibits, inhabits, sorry, inhabits 
when he's on stage and when he's singing, when he's doing his thing, he's always got the pork pie hat and he's always got that gravelly voice. And he's being Tom Waits. Just the same way Bruce Springsteen is being Bruce. He's the boss. He's being Bruce, right? But that's not the actor. That's an actor who is playing a character. And um, yeah, it's interesting how some artists do that uh, and some don't. And um, the ones who don't, I think it's much harder. Uh, Yeah. So, okay. What else did I want to tell you? Oh, I know what I want to tell you. We have, so there's this guy, Jason, very cool dude, um, who lives in uh, Northern California. Met him. He listened to the podcast and hung out a few times. He's made some, he gave us these beautiful plates he made. um, He's made cups for us, sent cups to my mother. He's a potter. Uh, Really, really good. Uh, His website is Sani Ceramics, S-A-N-N-Y Ceramics. Dot com. Anyway, he had this idea of, uh, hey, how about if I make some some cups and we put the sad chimp on, so like civilized to death, uh, you know, celebrating civilized to death or just that, that whole sort of you know, theme. And so he made these, we decided tumblers made more sense without handles because handles can break easily and shipping and all that. Um, so he made these, uh, stoneware tumblers. They're fucking beautiful. They're this deep forest green color. Each one's different. They're unique. Um, but they all have the sad chimp face stamped into them. You can see them on my website. Uh, he made a limited, I think, I don't know if there are 40 of them or 50 maybe, but he only made a few of them in the first batch and we'll see if people like them and, and buy them. Then maybe, He'll make up uh, another batch of them. Maybe we'll do another color or something. But um, they're they're really awesome. So if you're into pottery and you're into the sad chimp uh, situation, if you've got the hoodies or the shirts or whatever, uh, check them out. We decided to make them 40 bucks each, including shipping, handling, everything, uh, which means you know nobody's making a lot of money on them because it, it takes a lot to to put these together and ship them out. And we're only shipping them in continental United States. So again, sorry for any Australians or people up in Alaska or Canada or whatever, but the shipping is just too much. I think it's like 12 bucks shipping as it is. It's just per cup. So um, 40 bucks each, including everything in continental US. And uh, they're guaranteed to arrive intact. So if you're into fine pottery, check them out. They're on my website. Just go chrisryanphd.com or thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com and click on the store. All right, I think that's pretty much all I have to say. I'll save the rest of it for the Roma coming soon. I think I might call it the way of the inferior man. I'm not sure, but it'll be up in a few days. All right, so enjoy this conversation with Mr. Niles Heckman. And uh, I'm going to play you out with a song that, uh, that I really enjoy because it reminds you. There, there are different things to remind us about, right? Like the song at the end of this podcast, You're Going to Die One Day, reminds you of your mortality. Um, 
Now, this is a song that reminds you to slow down. What's the hurry? Right? There's no hurry, especially given the fact that you are going to die one day. And uh, so who's at a rush to get to the end? Slow down. Enjoy it. Chew your food. Stay in bed. Take a long, hot shower or a bath. Take a walk. Slow down. The group is called The Grid. The song is called Slow Down. Take it easy, everybody. I'll be back at you soon. Thank you again for your attention, your time, your kindness. Slow down, brother. Take it nice and slow.
go with the flow, nice and slow, go with the flow, nice and slow, go with the flow, slow down, bro. Beautiful. Well, after a lot of rigmarole, I'm here with <laughs> Niles Heckman. Uh, thank you for putting up with all that. We started trying to do this podcast half an hour ago, and um, we finally hacked our way through the technological thicket, and we have arrived at a clearing in the jungle where we can sit by the fire and talk, finally. Absolutely. So, Perseverance pays off. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah, it's good to talk to you, man. I've certainly known who you were for many years. I have a funny story about how I found the origins of you related to your book, Sex at Dawn, where you were talking about interesting things in regards to the male anatomy. And somebody sent me some link to this dude talking about funny things related to how the physicality of the male anatomy works related to your book way back when. So that's kind of how I originally found out about you numerous years back. And it was oh, this funny nice. com comedical moment. Right. Was I talking yeah. about the plunger penis? Yeah, or it was the plunger, how like the dick is a plunger to plunge out the other guy's sperm, basically. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the context of where the conversation was being had, but it was very hilarious and I was just dying <laughs> laughing. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, I, I, I figured out early on in writing Sex at Dawn that it, uh, it better be funny. I mean, naturally, I, I tend to be, you know, go for the humor anyway. I won't say I'm funny, but I try to be funny. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're writing a book about sex that's very explicit, I think you better give people um, 
reasons to laugh because the tension builds up and it's going to come out through laughter or anger or something else. And yeah, so people who don't have a sense of humor, I, you know, I got a lot of anger from that book. A lot of people were offended and, you know, huh. so it's, it's interesting. If you have a good sense of humor, you tended to laugh. If not, you're just disgusted or offended or whatever. Yeah. Maybe the people that were uptight are the ones with the very tight buttholes, you know, it's like super uptight people. I think that comedy is such a natural, beautiful way to bypass people's imperial conditioning systems. And we see mm -hmm. that through really prolific comics like Lenny Bruce or George Carlin or Bill Hicks, you know, where they, they use comedy as a way to get around people's conditioning. And through through funny moments, you can really penetrate into other areas of people's psyche in a really beautiful mm. way. So I think I can if you found yourself doing some of that through the book, and I, I think that you do have elements of yourself, dude, in your outputs where you're hilarious. And I really, you know, I chuckle when I've listened to you in the past in some of your rants on politics and these things. Oh, uh, they're, yeah, they're chuckle worthy. <laughs> chuckle in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um anyway, well listen, w welcome uh welcome to the podcast. It's it's been a while. Um uh, you know, I you were uh, saying before we we got recording that uh you know, various friends of ours that we have in common and and people who just love um, love your work, uh, specifically shamans of, glo of the global village, right, is mm -hmm. what we're talking about. Uh, Judy Campbell and uh, some other people have put us in touch. And I've been, I have to admit right from the get-go that I've been a little hesitant um, to have you on to talk about this because I'm, I'm conflicted about the commodification of indigenous wisdom. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, and, um, you know, so I, I tend to sort of when, I, you know, it's a weird thing, too, because I spent most of the 80s and 90s being really immersed in studying shamanism, in um, exploring altered states of consciousness and, and you know, for my own education and and um, whatever kind of enlightenment I could find there and, and traveling and, you know, being in other cultures. And so my path is very much aligned with what you guys are doing in that show. Mm -hmm. But there's something about it becoming a show that turns me off because it feels like it's part of I guess what I'm trying to say is like I was working and yearning for these things to become more mainstream. But now that they're becoming more mainstream, I'm kind of resistant to it. And I recognize that that's my hang up in, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you feel that at all. If you ever feel like we're taking something that's sacred and very small scale and personal and we're trying to get it on TV and you know, bring it to the world. Is there something lost in that scaling up process? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like it's such a great point to raise because the commodification through, you know, corporate crony gangster laissez faire capitalism. I mean, that's what it does. It commodifies everything, you know, the elements of earth, air, fire and water and certainly indigenous people's practices and their shamanic and medicinal practices and medicine being in terms of generally um the combination of the mental healing and an expansion of consciousness is very much the medicinal part of the medicines. I mean, these things are as old as the hills. Yeah. So modern society taking them and there's so much going on with 
I'm not super tapped into what's going on with the, you know, the clinical trials of MDMA and that type of thing. But I do know that obviously these things are trying to be as commodified, just like anything within the system. And so in that regard, we're not some big show that's trying to take them to the masses necessarily. We're just two kind of my colleague Rack Razam and I, who he and I have created this show called Shamans of the Global Village. Basically, it's just the two of us making this thing as like a side project with a little help from our friends. And ideally, it'd be nice if this show was something that that took off and was m more known. Sure, in that regard, we'd love to make it like our full-time jobs, for example, when right now it's our hobby. But the way that it's being done right now, it's just like we made a pilot episode in 2016 just on, on our own. And it's each episode is as complex as make, making a feature documentary film, which can take years to make at this point. So we've, we've completed, it's now 2021 at the time of this recording. We, we finished a second episode in 2021. Uh, um, it's 2021 now. We finished a second episode last year. Mm. So we're making it very slow drip, but it's not like something that's got this massive following behind it. It's a very still kind of obscure thing. But you're right. I mean, you can have more esoteric concepts on the pages of books and things about like authentic spiritual practice that are basically so entwined with people's personal experiences. And then when you try and write books and commodify things like that, it's a whole different smorgasbord. And, and when you open something up, when the chrysanthemum blooms into something more of like, you know, a piece of media that can get out to more people, because sadly today, more people are willing to watch things than read things. Seems like less and less people are interested in reading things of philosophical depth, and they're more willing to sit down and watch some fluffy thing on a streaming network. You could say that, yes, it's kind of a more broad appeal thing now by having a show made. But, you know, we're trying to keep it something that's so about the honorable version of how it should be done from the indigenous perspective. It's not about like kind of you know, neo-shamans in Santa Monica yoga classes. It's about like the lineage of the elders and the indigenous wise traditions and how that has been passed to younger generations of, of medicine practitioners, right? And medicine in that sense of the shamanic medicine dynamic. So it's a very, it's a very tight road to walk because here we are as two kind of Western white guys. You know, I'm from, I'm very much live in America as a you know, somebody of the middle class of the United States. And my colleague Rack is also from Australia. Here we are as kind of two white guys talking about indigenous medicines. The indigenous yeah. are very sensitive to people co-opting their practices. You know, so that's a whole thing. We've gotten a little bit of pushback on that in the sense that it's a very valid thing to say about like white man anthropologists coming in to kind of take over and run shit or to, to co-opt practices. You know, we've certainly seen that with the dynamics of pharmaceutical companies coming into the rainforest and trying to patent some, do some bullshit patent on something that should inherently be a natural resource of some plant from the rainforest. But at the same time, it's like shamanism is everybody's, you know, I mean, there's shamanic practices from where you, you, you and I's native people are from Scandinavia and, and Siberia. So it, it is something where we realize that shamanism is a key component to a healthy community of civilization. And then, you know, the twilight days of empire within the United States, one of the reasons so much of what we have going on is in meltdown right now is that we have no level of initiation into adulthood. Mm. We have no, you know, mature society. It's like we're a society of basically children. The Native Americans from the United States, you know, would go on these spirit quests and send their, their young sprouts into these trials of initiation and had a deep, deep connection with some of these, you know, entheogens. So it's not, the show is is trying to highlight both 
this, the dynamic of a psychedelic, not just from the standpoint of like the recreational standpoint, which of course is not the good way to do it in, in terms of context and set and setting, but it's trying to highlight it from the sen sense of the medicinal aspect and then the environmental aspect of like sustainability with nature and that how uh, shamanism is basically a key component to what you know our ancestors realized. Because again, this stuff is as old as the hills. So that's my so ramble. Are your are your episodes all going to be organized in terms of a specific uh, psychedelic substance? I think the first episode was peyote. Is that right? The second episode's on peyote. Yeah. So oh, okay. shaman. Let me. I'll back up a bit. So the series is basically about. It's about indigenous entheogenic medicines, as we say it, and the modern shamanic resurgence in the sense of a lot of, you know, as some things feel like a lot of people seem to be on the wavelength of, I know, especially politically, it seems like some things are de-evolving. And then in other ways, it seems like a lot of people are going through levels of realizations to slight higher states about where we are and what we're doing and where we're going. So the show is trying to highlight, basically, each episode is, is aimed to focus on a specific medicine and a specific medicine person and practicing with that medicine. And, and ideally, it would be done, and this is how we've done both episodes, is we're not finding some random person who's claiming that they're something they're not, but we're highlighting the actual, we're going into the uh, tribes, you know, on, on various pilgrimage quests to shoot each episode, meeting with the indigenous elders and getting their approval to do so with deep reverence and deep reverie and respect. And then also highlighting, you know, a younger person or even a middle-aged person, it can even be an elder, you know, we haven't really set that in stone, that has gotten a transmission of knowledge from the elders because that's mm. such the crucial dynamic of how this stuff has always been done. It's not something that, like with any sort of training system of wisdom and insight, it's like you need valuable teachers from wise elders. So that's the... That's the dynamic with the show. The, the first episode in all, you know, to be fully upfront and honest about it, the first episode was very controversial, too, because the specific practitioner in the first episode has become very controversial. And in past conversations, you know, here I am saying we're trying to find very honorable people. And the gentleman who's the focus on the first episode, my personal experiences with him were very, very positive and very life changing. But then, you know, there's been a lot of controversy around him, too. So nothing's perfect. And the second What's episode... What sort of controversy? Uh, well, Octavio Redding is the gentleman who's the focus of the first episode, and he works with 5-MeO-DMT of the Sonoran Desert Toad. And there has been some deaths around Octavio's practice. You know, this is kind of like when you look at something from a medicinal standpoint of a doctor. It's like, I, I, I don't know the intricate details of Octavio's practice, but I do know that he's had thousands of, you know, life-changing successes. And then apparently there's been a few deaths. I don't know the exact details. Mm -hmm. These things happened after we did the episode. Right. And I don't know if it's based on dosage or what, but my wife is a medical professional. My wife's an OBGYN. And she's had the same thing where it's like thousands of positive experiences with deliveries. And she's, she's lost a couple patients too. So, of course, you, you yeah. really, really remember the sad stories. So in regards to that, that's, you know, something that very much is these, th these things are very serious. It's very serious stuff and there's no fooling around with this. And the second episode focuses on a, on a gentleman who's not young. He's very much a tribal elder named Don, um, Jose Luis Ramirez. And the focus of the second episode is uh, peyote. So that was the one that we shot more recently. But he was a beautiful, beautiful person to interact with. And, you know, you see the positives of what the tribes do these days, and you see the things that very much they're living with hardship about. You know, there's some beautiful 
excellences with what they're doing and some very massive, huge struggles, you know, especially with the way that the world's operating now. But you also see their spirit. You see the beauty of what they do well and what we can very much learn from them. Mm. What, yeah. what do you think we can learn? What, what's applicable to the modern global village? Yeah, I mean, the main thing that the main thing is just the dynamic of, you know, having such deep reverence and respect for not only the, the, the indigenous medicines, the plants and just the whole landscape, the environment as a whole. Just that whole like animistic perspective on nature is so beautiful, because if if any of them, you know, if you're if you're raised in a little village somewhere as an indigenous person, like the first episode we focused on just both both episodes happen to be shot in Mexico, just coincidentally, because of just ease of access. So the first episode, we, we went into this tribe in Mexico called the Seri. There's like there's something like 14 indigenous tribes of Mexico still. I don't know the exact number, but um, it's ballpark, something like that. And the second episode was with the Wuchol. The Huichol is actually how you pronounce it. And, um, you know, these tribes basically, even if they have zero education level, I mean, some of them can't even read, but they have this beautiful spirit about how they interact with Gaia, cosmos, divinity, and nature. You know, and again... You'll see, you'll see things like, you know, you're very much aware of where you go into some tribe and you still see aspects of, you know, trying to cater to the modern capitalistic mindset or you see elements of misogyny. And, the, you know, they're not perfect by any means. But that spirit they have is really a beautiful dynamic. And I see that with, you know, indigenous people of Native American descent in the Americas fighting these oil pipelines and things like that. You know, they have this perspective, this beautiful perspective on nature and this and living in harmony and sustainability with with our environment i mean because yeah usually i wonder and, and if you go ahead yeah go ahead i could say no, why, no, but please ahead. please go ahead well and it's because you know usually they've had these interactions with various elements of the environment mainly plants and various animal substances that have given them downloads so the last thing you want to do when you're getting data from you know our beautiful world is destroy it for commodification. So that that leads, I don't know if this is a new point or I'm just restating what I said earlier, but I'm, I'm torn between the idea that um, these substances do uh, offer a download, as you, as you put it, uh, mm. of a kind of wisdom or a sensitivity or an awareness that can help us modify our perception of the world, our interactions with the world, and, and ultimately our culture, versus that our culture is so overwhelming that it will take those things, repackage them into the same nonsense that it repackages everything else into, and thereby drain them of their healing potential. I, I, mm. I keep thinking of yeah. this... Um, I was I was in LA a year or two ago and I was at a friend's a friend was having um people get together in a Mexican restaurant to celebrate his birthday and I happened to be sitting next to this guy at the table and we started talking and um he said uh that my friend said, oh, hey, you should talk to Chris about ayahuasca. You know, he Chris knows about ayahuasca. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing ayahuasca soon. I've never done it before. What do you think? Is it a good idea? And I said, well, where are you doing it? And he said, uh, in Venice. I said, when? <laughs> Tomorrow night. Said, Tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. like, 
uh, and he said, yeah, they wanted me to do the whole weekend, but I don't have time. I have to fly out to New York on Sunday. And, and I was like, so you're in a Mexican restaurant drinking a margarita and tomorrow you're going to be doing ayahuasca. And I, I didn't want to ruin, I mean, I didn't want to contaminate his experience, but it was like, yeah. what the fuck? are you people doing? And this is yeah. someone with, you know, plenty of money, plenty of connections, like he, you know, but he couldn't be bothered to fly down to Brazil or Peru or even set aside the whole weekend, you know? So right. I, I guess- And what's what, he going to be I, doing after the ayahuasca? You know, well, going back to the same thing. Dude, even worse, I, I heard later, <laughs> I, I, hope this, <laughs> I hope nobody who was there is listening to this, but I heard later what happened. <laughs> So they were they were in someone's house in Venice, uh, and they all took the ayahuasca. I don't know if there were fifteen or twenty people there, and somebody got paranoid and called the cops. So the cops mm. busted into this house with everybody the puking. Uh, yeah, exactly what you want, uh. right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So, I, like I say, I maybe I've just become a grumpy old man. But you know, thirty years ago, I was like everyone should take acid, and now I'm like, ah, keep it away from these crazy people. Mm, yeah. So, what do you? Well, I, I guess my, I that's that, not really a question. Yeah. But like, is there is there inherent value in the substances? Would Donald Trump be a smarter person if he took some some DMT? No, I think it'd be completely lost on him. You know, but. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, uh, it's like our spiritual journeys, you know, may have a stop off in Peru, but they don't end in Peru. Right. So I always say that you're, you, what you put into an experience is like a mirror on what like your level of development and attainment is kind of a mirror of what you get back. Right. So if somebody's a jackass and their life's a mess, it's like maybe, you know, you can only heal you from the healing perspective. If somebody's completely addicted to some hard narcotic or they're just on what I what, what is called the, the descendant path. You know, there's like the latent path, which is most people that we know. They're just kind of going sideways in life and they're going to barbecues and working their jobs and doing fine. And then there's people on this descendant path in life where they're just, you know, downward spiraling and living a life of crime. But, you know, very, very few people are actually doing something ascendant in life of betterment. But, you know, if, if somebody's just life is a mess, it's like you, you can only heal you. So from the standpoint of fixing your life shit. It's like these things are just a very valuable tool that deserve deep respect and reverence. But I don't also put all my spiritual basket into just taking entheogens, right? Because I've met many people that have had plenty of experiences with these things and their lives are still a mess, yeah. right? It's like what we do here in the material that's very much about our spiritual journeys in life, right? So I think that these things can be a catalyst for helping expand consciousness in a very brief amount of time, which is the beauty of them. But I'm also not like this is the only way to do things. I mean, obviously, I'm very much an advocate of meditation and thinking very proactively and knowing that our our minds are powerful engines of manifestation in a lot of ways. So it's a very good point, man. It's it's such a it's such a, a noble thing to say that when you live in a society that is very much kind of sick in a lot of ways, it's like these things aren't going to be the end all be all to cure everybody, especially if somebody's so far down into the level of this is how I'm going to live my life and the operating system, which I assume is reality is this way, just like, you know, Trumpelstiltskins might be. 
But like if somebody that's actually authentically searching for wisdom and insight and just knowing that the true nature of how the how reality works isn't necessarily always what we've been told or that there is so much more out there than what society and culture has to offer. I just think of these things as beautiful little stepping stones along the way. Yeah. Um, and then and, and it's and it's really it's really mature of you, Chris, to give insight on the container of it. You know, it's not something where doing these things in a scuzzy Chicago apartment with your, you know, your your friends who are not very honorable is very different than doing them in the insight of somebody that really knows what they're doing. And that's the issue is that so many people don't know how to find practitioners that are honorable or good, let alone be lucky enough to do them in somewhere where they can travel to have some amazing experience. And we know that with all industries, there's a lot of skullduggery and there's plenty of charlatans abound within shamanism. You know, we've heard many of these stories of people that go down there and have issues with with tourist travel and and all that and that all that stance. So and then what I would say, and this is the very rare and very lucky way to do it, is that, that if you can do it in the context of some elder that has the wins, insight and wisdom of, you know, an animistic knowledge, that can be very, very life transforming. And I, I've been lucky enough, you know, using myself as kind of the vehicle for transmutation in terms of the way that I live my life as we do the show, we have a pilgrimage somewhere to meet with the tribe that we're always invited to. It's not like we're crashing the party. But if we get an invite to 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 document somebody's, you know, various ritual practice or somebody's pilgrimage, it's really the pilgrimage that um, was highlighted in the second episode. This the Wuchol do this annual pilgrimage every year to go collect their peyote. Yeah. And they've been doing it for like thousands of years. You know, just the, just to be able to join that is a very special thing. And then to take the medicine in that context was very life transforming. So those are kind of there's all sorts of steps along the way. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that particular journey because um, that's something that I heard about a long time ago. And it's always stuck in my memory that when they go out to the desert uh, in search of the peyote, um, they sit around the fire at night and they admit, I don't know if you witnessed this, but from what I, I remember, part of the process is that you admit what you've done wrong in the past year. Mm. It's basically mm -hmm. a, like a confession kind of yeah. uh, ritual. And the belief is that if you don't come clean then either you won't find El Maestro, right? The the teacher, the peyote, or the teacher will hurt you. You'll have a bad experience. And so mm -hmm. there's something very um, sort of uh, uh, pro-social in, in that. You know, it, it's, uh, it reinforces the community and it reinforces concepts like authenticity and transparency and honesty with your you know, your fellows, yeah. um, and forgiveness, because a lot of what's being admitted by the fire is, dude, I slept with your wife, you know, or, <laughs> you know, I, I've thought about <laughs> sleeping with your wife. Um, yeah. You know, so, so there's this sort of like a container around the experience that I think a lot of people would say is as important or more important than the experience itself. Agreed. Yep. And just the, just being around the campfire with the family or the tribe, it's like, you know, that's how we're such social beings, humans. And, you know, that's why this whole what's going on with the world today with, with 
people's compartmentalization within the system, you know, amplified by this terrible, terrible term, social distancing, which could be, which should be called temporary physical separation. You know, we're such social beings, even the most introverted type B introspective person just really needs human connection. Yeah. And so to just be in community and, and with the tribe or with, you know, your local neighbors, you know, know your, knowing your neighbors in camaraderie is so crucial. And so having a support structure, you know, pre, during, and post, paramount, paramount. Yeah. So well what said. do you think about yeah. about the the term medicine? Well, that's yeah. So the psychedelic is obviously a term. These are psychedelic drugs. Obviously, drug is a very stigmatized term, even though we have sugar, yeah. caffeine and, you know, all sorts of other drugs. That's a whole other story. Yeah. But, um, you know, I always say that sugar is like the worst drug, man. It's like my, my three getting my three year old daughter to not be exposed to just ample amounts of sugar. If I prevent, if I try and prevent that, I become the dick. You know, right. yeah. <laughs> so that's your job, so, Dad. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of the, again, like kind of contractive drugs, you know, like all these drugs that happen to be legal versus expansive drugs. And yeah. the expansive drugs seem to be staggeringly hard to find because we have no reference points on them. You know, in the 60s, the LSD dynamic, you know, LSD was shut down by the machine before it ever had a long enough legacy with the culture to learn how to be worked with in a shamanic context. So um, in that regard, you know, these things are very stigmatized just upon their labels. And we know that if if the world is, so much of the world is mental and language is, everything is kind of this vibratory structure that's built through language. We know so much of politics is just language. And so in the sense of calling these things entheogens is kind of the next step where entheogen, the etymology of which just means to awaken the di- divine from within. I do find that to be a little bit more of a respectful title than just psychedelic mm. yeah. because of the context. So I find entheogen to be a little bit more in the context of how the indigenous people worked with them. And then medicine is kind of the the, the quick phrase, I guess you could somewhat say politically expedient euphemism to describe these things if you look at them both from a mental healing standpoint and the expansion of consciousness. So I don't, yeah. you know, some, some people are, and you know, I guess we could be accused of calling these things medicines. It's obviously part of the, the marketing pitch for the show. But um, I think it helps kind of put a framework around it in a very quick, simple way. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was thinking about the term when, when you were talking earlier about how uh, it's unrealistic to expect these substances to solve our problems in and of themselves, right? Like, you know, someone's not going to, take LSD or, or DMT or peyote or whatever, and suddenly um, be a better person or, or, you know, although there are opportunities for insight, uh, as you say, just by recognizing that things aren't necessarily as you've been told. I think that's an incredibly important lesson to learn. But the point I was getting at is that I kind of feel like calling the medicines plays into this idea that we have uh, as Americans that there's a pill to take to solve mm, the problem, mm. you know? Sure. And a peyote button is a pill for your ignorance or your despair or, you know, it's like, no, yeah. dude, the, the way you live is the problem. The, the society is the problem. The, the whole thing, it's so overwhelming. And there is this temptation to think that you can, you know, go off to Joshua Tree and take some, you know, ayahuasca and puke with some hippies and you're going to be enlightened. And of course, one of the great dangers of these things and one of the dangers of not having um, the 
cultural containers uh, like the Weechul that you're talking about and, and other Native people have developed over millennia is ego inflation. And so that gets us back to this whole, I have a friend who has a, an Instagram account called Steve the Shaman. And it's basically like, a, you know, one of these instant shamans who's now like offering $5,000, you know, video course or something. And it's a parody yeah, of, of this phenomenon. Yeah. But I know plenty yes. of real life Steve the Shamans who, you know, tripped a few times and now they're making money. And it's... Um, it's commercial. It's not spiritual. It's anti-spiritual. You know, um, I, I think it's actually it's counterproductive. It's, you know, it's not like it's not like your wife who, who uh, you know, has maybe one in 10,000 cases that goes wrong. Through It's more like someone pretending to be an OBGYN who never went to school. You know, it's that damaging. Yes. So it's yes. Yeah. I don't have a question. I'm just ranting again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's 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 so it's so good to kind of walk on this very carefully because this is something that's very sensitive material and, and I guess one of the the reasons why one of the things that catalyzed us making the show was just to show you know westerners in other in other parts of the world people have much more context on shamanism. I mean, go through most of South America and they have much more of a large context about it, but through you know where Empire spread, especially in I, I oftentimes talk about how empire today is still very much alive, like Philip K. Dick would say. Mm. It's just more covert than overt these days. And so like Americans, for example, or other parts of, you know, the globe that were very much part of the imperial, you know, bloodshedding that took over indigenous practices, like people have no reference points on what even a real shamanic ceremony looks like or what the culture is. And so that's what one of the reasons why the media of a documentary film is good to just show the context of what does this stuff look like? What is a perhaps proper way to go about it? And what is the context of, of doing it with, you know, the elders and what is the experience a bit like, even though to some extent we could never show the internal, you know, esoteric journey. That's one of my like lots in my entire filmmaking career is how can that ever be shown without, you know, many, many resources. And millions of dollars of visualizing, you know, the, the the internal experience, but just from the giving a little bit of context as to like if you're interested in what this what this is like, and you're interested in seeing a little bit more about it from a very kind of I always try and mix a bit of putting it in a really cinematic container, which is what my background is, mm. with some level of philosophical depth and insight. That's kind of the mixture of why the media works well in that regard. But I think that. You know, there's these stages of competence. I don't know if you've heard this, Chris, where it's like, have you heard about like going from, you start out in, in unconscious incompetence. Have you heard about this? And you go, eventually you move when most people are unconsciously incompetent and they don't know it. And then at some point through your journey in life, you might become consciously incompetent. And I think that some of the experiences with these things can lead us from step number one to step number two, can, can allow us to realize that we're consciously incompetent and we suddenly realize that we don't know shit. We don't know shit about shit. Yeah. I've never yeah. heard the phrase that way, but I've, I've often thought that's what maturation is. Right? It's, <laughs> yeah. It's just learning enough to recognize how little you know. It, you yes. Know, that's, that's about it. How did you get into this? What, what's your personal voyage been? Well, I was a, I, 
I started out in the film industry and I was actually this young sprout in his early 20s who was working at a professional company very much within aspects of a tertiary part of Hollywood. And I would go did on to film. Did you go to film school? I did go to film school. Yeah. And I would, I would show, I would go onto film sets as this young person and I would essentially in a non hopefully pretentious way, tell them how to shoot stuff. So it wasn't all messed up for post-production, but I was on major, you know, film sets in Vancouver, primarily Toronto. A lot of stuff is shot. And, uh, you know, I'm here on, you know, new line cinema and 20th century Fox and like Marvel studio shoots, um, seeing how things at that level are done quite well in a lot of ways and how things are done very inefficiently and not well. But having done multiple things through my career, you, of course, come to realize several things. One is that you have very little control over the actual depth and substance of what the material is that's, that's being made. That's what's beautiful about writing a book. It's like you write a book and it's about what you're passionate about and writers know to like write what you care about and what you're interested in. But when you're in a massive team effort where there might be thousands of people working on a studio movie, all of those people have a crucial role to play. But still, it got to the point where, to some extent, I saw that I was such a cog in the gears and a lot of the content was not very good. You know, I did work on a few Academy Award winning movies and I'm pretty proud of those and they were great. But to some extent, I was such a small tertiary part of the of the assembly line. Was, what was your job? I was doing a v various like visual effects work. I was a visual effects supervisor. Mm. And then I also did various things in post-production over the years where independently I did a lot of like just independent direction work. And then, you know, I was kind of, I gained a skill set where I could also be what's called the, my own director of photography, which is essentially the cinematographer. So I kind of found through my career, air quotes, that I synchronistically gained a skill set of about being good at about half a dozen things that then allowed me to become an independent filmmaker where I could then have more control over the substance. And Was that much... your plan all along or did that develop as you went while you were getting frustrated with being a cog in the machine? Yeah, it, it was it was both. It was kind of like it's it happened without me necessarily being conscious of it. And then I kind of look back at ripples in the pond and see that it was all kind of, I don't want to say it was meant to be, but it worked out well. So that it's not like I don't still freelance periodically. You know, I occasionally will work in and out of an augmented reality company in San Francisco as a freelance capacity. But I also spend a large percentage of my time creating content when I have the time. That's stuff I am passionate about. So this show is one of those things. And it's it's if I'm going to make some things outside of Hollywood, it might have might as well be things that are somewhat more leading edge and paradigm destroying and not so this sounds a little new agey and fluffy, but not so like base chakra, you know, where there's just bullets being sprayed or, you know, this stuff that has no intellectual insight or philosophical depth. So I might as well combine the background of having very high standards of production values with stuff that has more to say. That's the goal anyway. Hmm. So, you know, you, you, you go, you, then you become this kind of David versus Goliath where you have this massive amount of challenge and, and, you know, limitations, especially budgetary limitations of what you can do and what you can make. But I do find that if you really persevere, um, you can get things across the finish line, which are extremely rewarding. And so are you mostly, very, yeah, go sorry. ahead. Are you mostly interested in doing documentaries or feature films as well? Or where's your, where's your trajectory leading? Do you think? Yeah, I've, I've also directed a feature film that's called Transmutation. That's about kind of a, a hidden spiritual path and highlights those that have kind of walked it in a very esoteric sense. It's not about, of course, mainstream religion, because, you know, that can be a whole nother story about like much of the things that I'm interested in highlight these kind of indigenous spiritual practices or ancient wisdoms or insight. A lot of that is what uh, actually much of religion co-opted and took over. But from what I do, I find that 
documentary is very interesting in the sense that it's much more, it's kind of like a higher, it's a more sophisticated form of filmmaking than most narrative work, especially in the sense also that the dynamic of, there's the dynamic of like the journalistic aspect, right? Not so much like the anthropo anthropological aspect of us going in and being these like anthropological people that are just in there trying to gain insight and, and wisdom on some aspect of what's going on within the particular use of medicine plants in the rainforest or something like that. But just the sense of documenting things that are, th that, that level of journalistic documentation does appeal to me because it has that level of sophistication. And as we know, any country, the, the countries that are the most authoritarian and like the least free, you can always judge a country by, I think, two things, how it treats women and how it treats journalists. So that journalistic aspect I do like about documentary filmmaking, and it's just a more sophisticated form of filmmaking I find. So that's what you know led. So who me do you way. admire in that in that realm? Who, well, who, whose work do you love? Yeah, you know Ron Frick is top of the list. And I don't know what Ron Frick has done lately, but he directed Baraka and Samsara. You know the oh, wonderful, right. yeah, the wonderful pieces. Obviously, Dead, Dave, Dead Can he, Dance did the the music for Baraka. I, did he? Yeah, yeah, yeah those that, are amazing. And, and yeah. they and the, the Baraka was um, that came after Koyana Squatchy and Pawasquatchy, which were kind of similar. Nicholas mm. Roig, did mm. you see those? Yes, yes. Yeah, music by amazing. Philip Glass. Yeah, yeah, amazing films. I, I say, I yeah, and I wonder what he's done now because you know at the time of this recording, there's cameras that are like the smaller than my computer screen that can do things that they did when they were shooting on these massive, huge IMAX rigs back then. Yeah. So I don't know why they have those. It can be so when I the feature film that I made, which is called Transmutation, you know, it took me three years to make. And it's not uncommon for certain documentaries to take documentarians five, ten years to make a, a project. So it's such a labor of love. But um, it's a beautiful time to do what we're doing now because, you know, things are so democratized. And I am really surprised how often I or how rarely I actually see stuff that's really excellent, you know, mm. with how democratized stuff is today. So I also, you know, obviously look at, you know, anything that David Attenborough does is just kind of yummy and wonderful. And then there's other things like, you know, we look at Warner Herzog and these these amazing document documentary filmmakers. And, and that's the thing about documentary work is it's always kind of in, you know, obscurity. And it's like, good luck trying to be some known documentary filmmaker. I think you have to just approach this thing as I do, as it's like kind of a hobby. And mm. it's one aspect of what I do. But it's like saying I want to be some famous musician. You know, it's like, well, have your eggs in multiple baskets. Have a divestif, div diversified investment portfolio in terms of, <laughs> of your time. <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, don't put all your time eggs in one basket. Yeah, yeah I, I am a huge Herzog fan. I, I, if he's probably, you know, if I had to name five living humans that I would, you know, most like to spend an evening with, he's one of them. Even though it would probably be a very unpleasant evening mm. for him. I think we would uh, disagree on most things, but he's he's just such an irascible character. I love his humor and his yeah, his um, you know, he's just uh, I mean, what you were describing is uh, like he never set out to be famous. He just was doing it because he loves doing it. And yeah, I mean, his if you look at his people who aren't familiar with his work, if you look at the, you know, he's, he's done like an entire film of midgets, um, you know, and he did, I remember this one where he 
um, I think it was the island of Montserrat, the volcano was about to blow and they were evacuating the island and he and his buddy were like, fuck it, let's go. And they went to the island and they're driving against the traffic of all these people fleeing this volcano. And he's interviewing the people who refuse to leave, you know? Yeah. I mean, just, I just love his, his take on stuff is so, he's so like dour you know, and the indifferent universe, you know, is out to kill us all. And yet he's such a, his love for humanity is so apparent in the way he works and the things he chooses to do. It's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. You have um, to be, or you have to be process oriented with stuff for sure. It's not about the goals. It's not about these kind of, you know, bullshit red carpet champagne dreams of the Hollywood mindset. It's just about enjoying your art and your craft. And I do find that when you put your passion into things, that's how you get some level of what I call, you know, just creative individualization, where you you create a seminal work that hopefully doesn't get stupid in 10 years. Mm. You know, it's something that you can go back and watch some old Herzog movie that you knew was just a passion project of his. And it's still great. You know, it's still lasting. It's not some fluff. And Yeah, and you're right. And the timelessness, the quality of timelessness is precisely because he's not reacting to any of the sort of contemporary pressures. He's not trying to please, you know, some production company or some Hollywood studio or, or, you know, he's not trying to sell more tickets. He's just doing, he's just seeking his vision or his truth. And that's timeless. That's not a reactive quality, you know? Yes. So what what are some of the films you worked on um, that you're proud of, the, the ones where you were a cog? I worked on Avatar for seven months. That wasn't bad. Yeah. You know, I met the production designer for Avatar. What was his yeah. name? Uh, oh, shit. Uh, yeah, it escapes me, too. But. Oh yeah, I met him in Hawaii. I was staying at this at this artist residence, and he was there. And he's the guy who worked with um, Spielberg on everything from ET hmm. through. He, he just his last project was that 1917. Oh, okay, you know, that, yeah, that, the shot, one shot, the whole movie. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Something. Um, yeah. Anyway, so Avatar. Avatar was a good film and very much about very Tom shamanic. Yeah, yeah, very shamanic, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I did have an interesting track through my again air quotes career where certain projects I worked on that I wasn't con- again unconscious incompetence. I didn't know about various themes running through certain films that I just happened to work on. You know, mm. I worked on the Matrix sequels when I was like very young, and I didn't at the time even have any idea what Gnosticism was. Mm. The deeper insights on like thinking of. Various things from a simulatory, you know, simulation perspective or realizing that there may be deeper truths being told through some of these seminal tales when you kind of tap the myth of what is a timeless story. That's how it kind of transcends. Yeah. But um, yeah, I worked on a I worked on a film called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which was very much this beautiful small team that was very good. And I, you know, I, I have had zero affiliation with any Star Wars thing except for working on Rogue One for six weeks, you know, this type of thing. And, you know, these are these are things that, you know, are big, ma- massive mega movies. And sometimes these Hollywood things have occasional good dynamics within them. And I, I don't think it's fair either to always so much of what we see predominantly wrong with politics is people that just speak in binaries, you know, like this is all good. This is all bad. And so, you know, you obviously see this like, you know, right wing mindset of like Hollywood is full of like all this negative everything. And so 
there's certainly some good aspects to Hollywood and some not good aspects. I worked with, you know, people from the lowest levels of the pipeline and the hierarchy to some of the top bigwigs and saw some really good things and some really bad things. And most people were really cool. And most things about the system were good. And there were some really not good things. And I'm sure you could say that about most industries, except for, you know, those that design missile guidance systems or something. Or, you know, you could probably even say that for aspects of Wall Street or whatnot. You know, years ago, I, I uh, it must have been the 80s because I think I was living in New York and uh, there was a, an obituary in the New York Times that caught my eye because the yeah. guy's last name was Ryan. Mm. So I was like, oh, Jack Ryan. And this guy had worked at Raytheon designing a missile guidance system. <laughs> yeah. And for the uh, Minuteman cruise missile that was mm. his big project at Raytheon. Mm. And then he retired and uh, he had uh, this couple were friends of his. Uh, if they owned Hasbro or M Mattel or one of the toy companies, right? Mm. A small, a relatively small toy company. And this guy, Jack Ryan, retired early. I guess he made a bunch of money designing missile guidance systems and uh, selling his soul. Selling his soul for he got a good price for it, yeah. and um, he was really into strippers. Nice, and, classy, yeah. And so he's having dinner with this these friends of his who own this toy company, and they're talking about how they need they're trying to design a new doll. And he says, "You should design a doll that looks like a stripper and mm -hmm. sell it to truckers." Mm. And they're like. That's a great fucking idea. So th they ask him to design the doll. So he designs the doll based on the dimensions and the proportions of his favorite strippers. And they sell, they market this doll to truck drivers and they put it on the dashboard of the truck for these long hauls. <laughs> you know, you can look up at your... Uh oh, it's not to scale. It's not like your plastic trophy daughter wife real doll. It's actually <laughs> no, small. It's, okay. it's small. It's finished. It just yeah, sits on your dashboard, right? I like some weird Japanese sex robot. Shit. <laughs> yeah. no, that's what they'd be doing now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this was a few years ago. This was back back in the day. This was in the 60s, I guess. And uh, so what happens? The truckers get, get home, right? And their daughters see this doll and the daughters react to the doll. They love this stripper doll. <laughs> and so the doll ends up getting... They they switch the marketing and because all these little kids are buying it, these little girls are buying it. The doll is the Barbie. Oh my gosh, that's, that's hilarious! The Barbie doll. Yeah, I love you know, I love stuff like that. That's hilarious. You know, and I have a three year old, and I will say that as just somebody that's a hobby filmmaker, you know, again, I spent three years making this feature. Each episode of the show, you know, it takes us. We get these sudden opportunities to maybe. Get, do an episode and it comes up quite quick. The second episode we, for the show we shot in like three days, but it took me about mm. six months to post-production it. So, you know, it's these big swaths of time to block out to do a project. But then between that, I'm very much living life as I am in standard operating, you know, American life, trying to live as honorably as possible within that system of somewhat untruths. But I still do find myself with a three-year-old that is my only child and will stay my only child playing with dolls, Chris. <laughs> so this is what you have to do as a parent. <laughs> well, that's good that she's playing with dolls rather than staring at an iPad, you know? Sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you you sort of have to inject the, you know, what's the doll saying? What's she thinking? What's she, you know, at least there's imaginative 
interaction going on. It's true. And and I always, I'm such an advocate as I've become more developed. It's like you realize that as you input good material, it takes a certain amount of that then to output good material, as we know. So the whole dynamic of just purely consumption versus creation, we know so many people that just consume, consumes, consume. And as we know, much of it is just toxic garbage. So when you can have a really regimented information diet, I'm trying to teach a little person and advocate to anybody else that I ever talk to about being really regimenting what you're inputting. And for her, for a little person, it's like you can watch your, you know, face, face hugging, scrying screen a little bit, but then let's read this book for a little bit, or let's do some sort of arts and crafts work a little bit. Let's always fuel your creative flow. And then, you know, have some regimented balance between one or the other. So you're not just sitting in front of the screen for six straight hours. You might be doing that on a weekend day, you know, for a few hours, but then you've also painted for a few hours. And I think that's a good way to teach little people um, just lessons for life. And Especially now when, when the attention economy is, you know, scratching at them constantly. Totally. I it's how old are you? I'm 41. I'm just, I'm 41. And I will say, dude, that on the subject of drugs, the best drug ever is like a creation drug where you create something that is uniquely your own, mm. you know, just from an artistic standpoint. It's like, you know, the, the, just the mental health standpoint and just the creative beauty of creating things. I feel so energized after I do finish a project. So in that regard, it is a little bit of a goal orientation mindset, but enjoying the process of it where you have, you know, I work with some co-collaborators on a project that I'm passionate about. I've certainly worked on pl in the trenches of plenty of projects with charlatans and, you know, where, where things were just, it was just a mess. You know, I know you've spoken a lot about the commercial world. And as somebody that's worked in and out of the commercial industry in Los Angeles, I can say that it's just like so cutthroat and very difficult, you know, to see both sides of the coin where you've worked on projects that were very astronomically stressful and awful and challenging. And to my, to my, I, I've almost gotten to this, uh, the standpoint where I love the process, but I love it when you structure it your own way for yourself, just like how you would yeah. as somebody that's an independent writer, where you write on your own time, on your own terms, what you want to be writing about rather than doing some for hire job that's not what you're passionate about and you yeah. don't like your boss and it's just a mess. So we always are seeking some sort of harmony and balance within our outputs creatively, whatever our outputs yeah. may be. Well, as someone who's written a couple of books, uh, I can tell you that I have often missed the uh the community of creative people you know that i you know i have friends who who write on uh, tv shows and they talk about being in the room especially comedy shows you know i have a lot of comic friends and um that's just i know obviously i'm ignoring all the negative aspects of it but the idea of being in a room with a bunch of smart funny people and just throwing around ideas and uh, it just sounds like heaven to me, as opposed to sitting alone in a room staring at a fucking computer. Yep. <laughs> feeling Slogging. like a charlatan, you know, it's just like, oh, man. But you're right. We're always looking for balance and, and some sort of unity. Um, Writing's a lonely road, man. And that's the thing. Yeah. That's the same thing when you're trying to, you know, slog through a long edit or something. It's a lonely process. And you can have some dictatorial person sitting over your shoulder or you can have some really you know difficult publisher that's grinding you or you know writing on or a book editor that's ripping up your words it's like i think that if you can 
it's always, it's very, very hard to make a living off your creativity exclusively. You know, I've found ways in life to work extremely hard and have a series of income streams that are starting to turn into some level of, you know, sustainable income by my own creative outputs, but it takes years. And that's what I always advocate people try and do to some extent, if you can have some sort of side hustle without throwing your main breadwinning thing in completely in the garbage can. But that's what I, that, that is like much more your journey, your spiritual journey of like your mind, your heart, and your will, like what you think, what you feel, and what you do about how you can live life more authentically day to day. And it's not so much about some of the things that we talked more about earlier in this podcast. It's like, how do you find so that every day in your life is what you really want to be doing so that you're kind of pursuing what you might call your true will or what you actually, every day resonates where it's like, this is enjoyable. And I'm looking forward to getting up and doing this day and putting this forth. And then if I have some sort of revenue off of it, that's great too. But it's hard. It's very hard. And it's so many people struggle with even the base necessities of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, let alone things that are more creative pursuits. Well, I so liked I how you described it earlier, uh, this idea that that people can be on a, what was it, an ascendant path, a descending mm -hmm. path, and what was the a lateral late, path? latent path, yeah, the latent La path. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's an interesting uh, framing of the situation because I think, you know, obviously for many of us, our paths go up and down and, you know, we're, we're hopefully over time they're ascendant, but they're yes, definitely... it's a roller coaster path. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but also how does your work fit into that? You know, I'm I'm reminded of I, I mean that rhetorically, but I'm reminded of my buddy Tal Ruspoli, who's a filmmaker and a musician. He did a film about a flamenco guitarist in Seville. Um, are you hearing me? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I hear some background noise somewhere. Um, but uh, and I remember him talking to one of them. I forget the guy's name, but he's a very famous flamenco guitarist. And this guy uh, comes from a family of butchers, and he kept his butcher store open. And Tao said to him one day, "Like, why do you, why do you keep working at the butcher shop? You know, you're very famous. You could just do a few concerts and you know cover your expenses." Mm. And the guy, he's a gypsy, right? And he said, "Like, ah, oh, no, you never mix money with your art. Yep. Then you're just a whore. You don't." You don't mix money with love, you know? It's like you go to work, you make your money, and then you do what you love. Uh, which is kind of the opposite of the advice that, you know, we Americans are always given, right? Do what you love, follow your bliss, you know, the Joseph Campbell thing. Like, yeah. But if you do, if you're doing what you love, you're, you're in danger of turning what you love into a business. Yep commodifying again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's some sh there's some shamanic statement I heard once too about some woman that the practitioner who said I can't pay my bills with a feather and a stone. So we find our ways of having some level of sustainability of income versus giving away things completely freely. You know, and this is a show that we we have a modest price to sell the show. Otherwise, it's like how could we sustain the show? And so it's like it's hard. I, I have such reverence and respect for when an author writes an entire ebook and just gives it away for free, usually to collect your email. But you know that type of thing too, where it's like years of work put in to just help, you know, like communally help something it has a lot of you know honorability behind it. So how do we find these things? It, there's no easy answers in this regard. But I think that I, I have found that commercialism and spirituality are antithetical. Yeah. So when you find somebody that's like this charlatan, new agey, 
you know, on stage with like this massive sellout audience that's usually just has completely, you know, been void of actual spiritual authentic authenticity. Or the other side of it is like the Texas, you know, mega church preacher that is just flying around in the corporate jet. That is completely antithetical to the what I would find to be a much more authentic spiritual practice of like some old lady in a hut who's administering, you know, psilocybin mushrooms to, you know, one of the village people or some, you know, buddy that happens to go see her. And she's not in any way searching for, you know, the commodification of it. So it's always this like, it's it's the co-opting of these things with the modern, you know, society that I think is is always the difficulty and the pushback. And, and it's really insightful of you to highlight that this, you know, our society in all of its pros and cons, it seems like it is this kind of thing that is a Borg assimilation device where it seems to co-opt and take over things. So finding new ways of working, uh, you know, economically is not easy, yeah. but we know that these are things that have to, we have to move from like version 2.0 to 3.0 in a lot of ways of how we conduct ourselves in commerce and society. Yeah, I mean, so much of, of what was thought to be revolutionary in the 60s just got absorbed and commodified, you know, mm. tie-dye shirts. And I mean, I, I remember I was with a woman from Spain and, and we were in San Francisco and she said um, she, she was younger than me. She didn't really have any memory of the 60s or anything. She said, I want to be a hippie. And I said, well, what do you mean you want to be a hippie? She's like, yeah, I want to be. I said, you don't even like smoking marijuana. How are you going to be a hippie? You don't, you don't listen to the music. And, and she meant, she said, no, I mean, I want to buy the clothes so I can be a hippie. Like she wanted bell bottoms and tie dye so she could look like a hippie. She didn't understand that being a hippie meant something. It wasn't just a fashion statement, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I mean, the music and, and to a large extent, the drugs. And I just worry we're doing all that again. I, I don't know how to avoid it. In your experience, how do shamans in indigenous societies, like that little lady uh, giving mushrooms to one of the village people, by the way, when you said that, I imagine, you know, was it the policeman or oh, was it the mm, <laughs> Indian yeah, chief, yeah. <laughs> which of the village people? Um, but how do they, do, is it a business for them? Do they charge? Do they accept donations? Um, you know, how, how does it work commercially in the indigenous context? Do you know? You know, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a really good answer because in my experiences with both episodes and both tribes, it's not like I went in for weeks and saw the whole intricacy. I was honestly just there for a week for one and then a weekend for the other. So I didn't really spend that much time in depth. But the the one for the second episode of the show, it was just like the whole community goes out and gathers the peyote in Huerakuta, which is the area where, you know, the peyote has always grown in Mexico, which is this desert that's not a barren, empty desert, but it's this very beautiful, lush desert. It's almost like if there was a, a jungle desert, it's what this would be. But they all just mm. collectively went out there and then gathered it into these massive sacks, and then I just shared it with the community. So I think in that regard, the tribe, it was just one aspect of the tribe, like one large family unit that went out together that then we documented for the second episode of the show. So that's how I saw that done in that regard. But, um, you know, in, in the first episode, the Sari community that I highlight, and it's like Sari, I think, just like how you talk to Apple, Sari, S-E-R-I, I think, I think how the, the tribe is is spelled. But, you know, they live in a very, you know, over on the kind of coast of Baja, California, is where their community is. It's over by um, 
the exact area actually escapes me now, but they just live in this little tiny and frankly quite dumpy little village. And a lot of them are really struggling, especially with cartel activity in Mexico. And, you know, you even hear sad stories about how some of them have gotten hooked on methamphetamine and all these like negative aspects of what they very much suffer from for people that kind of fall through the bottom of the, you know, socioeconomic ladder within the society. So I think that they're very much trying to find a way to operate within the ways that they traditionally did things with just barter and then succumbing to, you know, the modern form of the capitalist, you know, board collective. So again, you know, no easy answers. But one one thing I do want to highlight about you, though, dude, and that I appreciate about your work and that I've seen within you and your past outputs, dude, is that you have this beautiful level of seeing things socioeconomically from the empowerment of the bottom up, right? And that's something that I talk about, too, in my material and not so much from the top down. And that's something that indigenous people are absolutely on the socioeconomic almost bottom of the of the ladder, Right. So just from a standpoint of like caring about the middle class, let alone the poor, it's like, God forbid. So that's a very like I, I think it's, again, not back to binary. I don't think it's fair to say, like, I am exclusively liberal or I am exclusively conservative. I think we can say that we have aspects of liberality and aspects of conservatism and we might lean one way or the other. And if you're some, you know, if you go off the deep end, you chuck one completely in the garbage can. But like, you know, in that regard, I think that the beautiful element of liberality is to see that too. see that like the societies that are kind of the most mature are the ones that work the most towards those that are on the very bottom. Yeah. What you said earlier, like you can judge a society based on how it treats journalists and women, right? It, mm-hmm. And you can do the same. I mean, Jesus said, you know, how do, how do we treat the least among us, right? Whether it's the poor or the yeah. handicapped or, um, you know, people, I mean, I think even conservative philosophy, if I understand it correctly, used to have at its core a compassion for one's fellow man. It just, they thought that things worked better for everyone if you structured society in a certain way so that everyone had sort of, you know, theoretically equal opportunity to uh, succeed and that the, you know, overarching state, nanny state interferes with that and robs people of their natural ambition to get ahead and all that. I mean, it, I think it's become embittered and nasty and sort of anti-community uh, in the last 30 or 40 years. But my understanding is that mm. at least uh, in theory, it was based upon um, a concern for for fellow humans at some point. And conserving things, like Conserve. conserving the environment, conserving yeah. the rainforest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. 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 I oftentimes talk about the dynamic of the difference between the large scale thing and the small scale thing. And mm-hmm. regardless of anybody's political orientation, you can see the difference between a mega corporation versus a small business or the yeah. difference between the big religion, mega church versus some small woman in a hut that's practicing spirituality, you know, esoterically, or the difference even between aspects of science, you know, large scale science where, you know, some person on a, uh, you know, university board is more concerned about their tenure versus something where they're an independent researcher in science. And then you even have something like that within other aspects of um, what is, there's another aspect that I talk about within scale of the difference between just the big and the small. And I think we can always recognize that the empowerment of the individual is not necessarily something that's only 
um, you know, that placates only to it's something that w when we look at things from a bottom up perspective, you can see that the in the sovereignty of the individual is king. But that doesn't mean that you throw any other aspect of it into the garbage can. Right. You can see that, again, working things from the bottom up from a socioeconomic perspective is beautiful, because when I've seen that within just interacting with people, I mean, I live in a very, you know, like upscale middle class part of the United States. And then here I am in a dumpy village in Mexico. And I can see the difference of that dynamic of how this person lives and their struggles versus how I'm lucky enough to live in the United States. And the difference of that in terms of just like realizing that there is a beauty to helping ourselves so that we can then help our community is key. And looking at that from the standpoint of of always the least among us, like rises all, you know, the, the rises all the other ships in the tide is what I'm trying to kind of gobbledygook say. But yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That, that I was thinking about that expression the other day. I, I read that somewhere. A rising tide lifts all boats, which is this uh, sort of Republican or conservative uh, mantra. And uh, mm. it's sort of like a trickle down economics kind of thing, you know, Gold, it's like, golden shower economics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll drink the champagne and put it on your head. It's it works out for everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I was thinking like, yeah, rising tide lifts all boats unless, you know, the small little boat is tied to the the anchor, you know, I mean, then it just sinks it. And that seems to be the way it's working these days. But I, I, I wanted just, to ask, sorry, yeah, go ahead. I, I guess I can say that through the experiences of doing the show and some of my life experiences, like I used to have much more, I guess you could say negative stereotypes of Mexico, for example. Mm. And now I, I see such a beauty in Mexican, in the culture of Latin America. I mean, they certainly have their problems. Absolutely. But, but, you know, placating to, Negative stereotypes is what people that, you know, the aspect of Americans that have never had a passport, you know, would do. And I know that you're somebody that's very well traveled. And I've lived in six cities in four countries, and you've lived extensively throughout other parts of the world. When you travel, you see this beautiful diversification of what other countries do well and not so well. And after having this experience with, you know, these tribes in Mexico, I can see the, the amazing beauty of Mexican culture. And you know, just think that see see so much deeper into it. And Mexico, I mean, on top of being like ground zero for psychedelics, by the way, I think that Mexico in the long past was like absolutely a very advanced culture, you know, in, in terms of advanced consciousness. But now with its struggles, it's like you can see that there's so much more there by just visiting it and interacting with it and being immersed in the culture is such a beautiful part of travel. And again, yeah. pilgrimage, it's about the pilgrimage, the journey. Yeah, Mexico, I mean, it's, it's hard to even talk about Mexican culture because there are so many cultures. Uh, it's such a diverse country. You know, you're talking about the native cultures you've been lucky enough to experience. And, um, you know, you, you go to Chiapas or Oaxaca, it's a totally different vibe from, you know, Chihuahua. Mm, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's, that's, have you been down there to like Palenque and, and Oaxaca? Yes, I have once briefly. Nice. Yeah, yeah I, I love it down there. It's, 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 yeah, just the variety of a country, too. That's what's so great about the United States is, you know, you can be one aspect of the United States has glaciers and the other has desert landscapes. And just this, you can see why a lot of Americans actually don't travel because we are such a large land and a diverse land in terms of our environment. But Mexico is similar, too, where it's just like I'm in a different planet than I was in the, the other part of this country. 
So yeah, and Europe far is more... different in that regard with these small homogenous countries, but we yeah. have so much variety here in terms of landscape. We do in terms of landscape, yeah. but not in terms of culture. Uh, a country like yes, Mexico right. has far more cultural diversity than the United States. I mean, even Spain, I would say, has, has you know, you know, there are, what, seven or eight languages spoken in Spain, you know, and totally different architectural mm -hmm. styles. And, you know, there's all that. Speaking of Spain, I, I was looking at some of your um, your street photography on your website. I really nice. like your website, yeah. by the cool. way. Uh, very funny. I, I oh, thanks, man. Highly recommend yeah. it. Uh, com. There's this great thing where you, you list like 50 different podcasts that you've been on and shows you've been on and just, you know, this exhaustive list of all the shit you've said. And then at the bottom, you say, <laughs> but keep in mind that he who speaks knows nothing and he who knows doesn't speak or something like that. Like From that, the Tao Te Ching. Yes. That was nice. That well, was that's, nice. that's a... That's an insight of wisdom from just teacher to student transmission of spirituality, right? It's that you go up to the ashram on the la on the mountain to learn kung fu, and you know there's this thing called what is it? It's um, apophatic versus kapophatic, and like the real teacher will not tell you things; he'll get you to figure out the things for yourself. And generally, like a really, you know, the etymology of the word asking is as king. So, like asking questions is key because you're, you're never going to learn anything by running your mouth. Right. So we have two ears and one mouth and they say to use them proportionally. So to truly listen to people and ask questions is you learn so much from that. And actually, like really, truly listening to people is like a beautiful gift you can give somebody along their journey. And we know how many people are not very good listeners. And to some extent, you know, I, I mean, on a podcast, it's a little different because it's nice to have a guest that just can flow and it's easy and you don't have to like extract information from them. But on the same time, it's like anytime I do a podcast or I'm a guest on a podcast, there's there's one barometer that I know it's a good conversation, which is that I feel better afterwards. It was a good mm. chat. And then I learned some stuff. Mm. And, you know, I think we can always reciprocally learn from each other as both student and teacher and never feel like you're only the teacher. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, any teacher worth his or her salt is constantly learning. Uh, there's a great one of the sort of pivotal um, books about Zen is, I think it's called Beginner's Mind. Yep. Oh, yeah. You know, you know Shin, Suzuki. Suzuki, yep. Yeah, yeah. Shinryo Suzuki. Right. Yeah, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. That's it. The, yeah. The philosophy that basically, yeah, like you come in with a fresh perspective and that, you know, you're not locked into old operating systems of doing things. And there is sadly, you know, this term that I know you've heard, and I'm sure many listeners have too, of like this particular industry advances one funeral at a time. And unfortunately that does certainly seem to be the case, right? Where it's like, you just have to wait for the old guard to die out so that there's a new thought process on how to tackle something that's so blatantly obvious to many, but just never seems to be adopted. And, yeah. 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 Changing of the guard. Well, it's interesting, though. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if that's a constant among cultures or if that's um, an artifact of our particular culture. I think it's an artifact of unwise elders, having a culture of unwise elders that's versus what wise I'm, elders. Yeah. You know? And and so what makes them unwise is, is 70 years of exposure to, uh, you know, faulty indoctrination. And designing missile guidance systems. Yeah. <laughs> and Barbie dolls. Well, you know, I heard a recent I heard a recent thing about, you know, various 
I can't remember what Native American tribe it was. We'd love to do an episode with the Native American tribe on, you know, um, not peyote, but the other cactus that, you know, is... San Pedro? Uh, San Pedro. Yeah. But there's, I heard a recent story about there's, COVID is really ripping through one of the Dakotas and really hurting some of the indigenous Native Americans. And they prioritized vaccinations for those elders of the tribe that still speak the various native languages because they're afraid of the language dying out. Mm. You know, in that regard, where it's, it's tough when you, I mean, I always try and be respectful to my parents who are very luckily still around. But I spend way too much time with them during, you know, COVID lockdown. And so we can see that, you know, there's some things that our parents can still teach us to this day and things that I think at our, some point we become more knowledgeable about our parents about when we start learning more than they learned in some regards. But just like you, man, my parents are very much products of the 60s and they have learned to never take anything for granted. And there's always still insight there. But from a cultural perspective, it's like, yeah, how does how do we know that like so much of what we learn from elders is is knowledge and good insight versus how much is just like cultural misinformation or disinformation or propaganda through years of of bad governance or bad decision making. So I think it's always yeah. a mixture of one or the other. And then there's another element of it, which is that, you know, we live in a society that's changing constantly. Um, you know, I was joking earlier when I was having technical difficulties, like, oh, I need my 32-year-old friend to come in here and tell me how this shit works, right? Because... Yeah, and that's why I asked you how old you were, trying to gauge like where you you were in terms of the internet. Did you grow up with the internet? And you know, when did that enter your world? Because I was in my 30s when the internet started. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, it changed the world radically. So the world that you and I are in right now is very different from the world. Um, you know, that your daughter is going to be in. So your knowledge of the world will be pretty outdated by the time you're, you know, 20 years from now, right? When yeah. she's 23 and she's gone, yeah, dad, right. You know, yeah. go back, go back to your den and let me handle this. Um, whereas in indigenous societies, the world was not changing. The world that you live in was the same as the world your grandfather lived in. So his wisdom was applicable to your world, how to hunt, how these different plants uh, can help us, you know, how to find, uh, you know, the fish in the river and, you know, how to build a shelter and like all this wisdom that had been accumulated over generations was extremely valuable. Whereas now it's like, yeah, I don't know, dad, what you learned in the 40s and 50s and 60s, it's what am I going to do with that now? It's a different world. So it's mm-hmm. not their fault. It's not necessarily that they've been, you know, poisoned with bad indoctrination. It's that they grew up in a different world. And I think that also creates huge amounts of anxiety for us because there really is no one to tell us how to live in this world because no one's ever lived in it before. Yeah. So novel. I think that there's things never certain things never go out of style, though, and never lose their value in terms of like cottage industry or working with your hands or a Mm. craft. You know, I heard a story recently about some, somebody that has some skill or trade that's kind of niche. And it's like, you know, it's like repairing church organs or something. It's like, how are you going to find somebody that can do that? And they're struggling to find a youngster that they can teach the trade to that is honorable and shows up on time Mm. and is interested, you know, and it's rare to find these things that I think are, are crucial for, 
you know, continuing a certain trade or craft. And I, I really have such a respect for that kind of cottage industry mindset where it's like, I know that with the huge struggles of small businesses right now, that that's so key if you can maintain a craft or a skill that then hopefully was something that you learned from some transmission of insight that wasn't just like a learn to code mindset or something that was easily replaceable. I think that's such a crucial thing about as you become more developed and more individualized, you become least like less easy to replace. Mm. And as you become more of mm. a cog in the corporate machine, you might have a really great paycheck and a good golf swing, but you're so replaceable. You know, Megacorp yeah. could switch you out in a millisecond for the other for the next guy. Yeah. That's yeah. a good point, you know, which gets brings us back around to this whole this whole intersection of commerce and and insider wisdom, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Jesus was a fucking carpenter, right? Like the, mm -hmm. he wasn't a full time guru making money from his followers. That yeah. came later, and you know, but that's certainly what Christianity became. But it wasn't his fault. He was pounding nails. Well, that's a, there's think, a bad joke in there somewhere about Jesus <laughs> and nails. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think that's an aspect of like, that's almost like an initiatory aspect of life is to find a way that you can have what is a revenue stream for you and what is something that's a respectable trade and craft that you can contribute to society through. Yeah. And that generally, I, I mean, this is what's typically happened through like various occult practitioners through time is that they actually did have a skill or trade that they developed and that was what paid the bills. And then they kind of did, you know, they're working on what's called the great work on the side. Right. And and it's not like they were trying to be some author that was selling some, you know, self-help book that was selling millions of copies and they were going to like be a major speaker and make millions of dollars a year. Well, it didn't work like that. Yeah. I mean, for those that have some level of success, great success within commerce, fair enough. But then I think there's always a level of finding the commercial balance versus like what's really the authentic way to grow yourself as an individual because those two is usually those two usually are not going to be the same thing and i think that in, in so fact, many people contradictory. struggle yeah in fact contradictory and that's one of those kind of initiatory struggles in life is that everybody's life is so unique everybody is a snowflake everybody's experiences are different and everybody's shamanic experiences are so different that's what the psychedelics experience is is so amazing about is it shows us like just when you think you figured it out it's something completely different and um, I think that everybody's life is a series of initiations along like kind of the yellow brick road of life to figure out all those things for yourself in the kind of learning lab of life. I often think that life is just a big learning, just like a training ground to discover you know, these earlier things. when I asked you how, what was your path to get into this? I was thinking it was sort of a two prong question. I, on the one level, I was, I wanted to know about your film work and your education and all that, but I was also interested in terms of psychedelics how like did you come to this project as a filmmaker and like oh here's this guy who wants to make a documentary about psychedelics i'm down or did you come to this as uh someone with your own personal experiences with psychedelics and that motivated you to try to want to tell this story you know i had for many years an inkling you'll like this story i had for many years an inkling to start a podcast and it was a very subconscious thing i didn't know why it was just like i should start a podcast and typically those that do start podcasts and those that speak on podcasts do so because they there's a lacking of conversations of substance within their own life and a podcast is a really great way to you know reach out to those and have actual real conversations and there's something about the medium of like a recorded podcast where somebody is really willing to spill insight to you and share things. And also 
it's not only a great networking tool, but it's also a way of like people are more willing to reciprocate or talk to you if there's a little bit of, I don't want to say a platform, but I started a podcast. I have a podcast called An Infinite Path, which is just about life growth, which is kind of really spiritual growth and then somewhat finding a balance in life, some of the aspects of what we talked about, and then how the end result of that will be your creative outputs because the inside is the cause and the outside is the effect. Mm. So I had started this podcast and a lot of it was initially talked about like specific people's creative projects, like what's your new book or your new film. And then over time, as it evolved, because I didn't know what it was, like all things that evolve, it became much more about like your overarching life philosophy and how your life has bettered you through the like, hey, Chris, you're on my podcast. Let's talk about your books and how they've changed your life and what you've learned through doing them. So the podcast really kind of became a thing that allowed me to have a network of people that I, I learned from and I knew things from. And then many of my opportunities of other documentary projects have come out of the podcast. And as somebody that's just a documentarian, I've found that, you know, as I've also become an essayist and you talk about the slow slogs of writing, dude, and by yourself, I've never written a book, but I do fancy writing in a shorter form. So I like the essay format where it's like, you know, you write three or five pages and you might spend a day or two if you're, if you're able to bang it out quick and you're not what I guess what writers sometimes call parking on the downhill, where you finish a day of writing and you've got to leave more mm. writing for you the next day. So I've never written chapter after chapter of chapter of a book. It's, I'm probably too dyslexic to even be able to, or it's just slogging through chapter after chapter. I have infinite respect for people that can write prose in that long form. I haven't gotten there yet, but I do like the essay format. So what happened kind of gradually over time is that I became an essayist that is a a corollary to the podcast too, because I write out the essays and then I speak out the essays in right. a narrated form, like yeah. an, a documentary filmmaker would. The documentary type of, of work I like isn't so much this talking head stuff where it's just headshot after headshot. I like to do what's called like in situ, where again, we go out and we shoot stuff in the field mm. of amazing things happening. And then there might be a narrated aspect to it that I do sometimes on my own personal project work. For the show, Rack is the narrator because he's such a great host and he's so knowledgeable about like the whole entheogenic culture and culture is a bad way to say it, but the entheogenic community. So Rack happens to be the narrator on that project. But I have this dynamic where I narrate many of the documentary projects. And then I also, because it's a lot of work to make a documentary, the ones that are just shorter form, I just have as an essay. So it's just a spoken word only component. And then the essays that I'm that kind of work really well as something that can expand out in, into a visual medium, I then turn into like a short documentary film. Mm. So I find this documentarian essayist dynamic is a nice dynamic. It's kind of different than saying I'm a writer and director because so many... So many aspects of like those who say they're writer directors. I, f I have issues within aspects of Hollywood within especially people that call themselves directors, usually because 99.9% .9 of them are complete egomaniacs. But it's a it's a dynamic with any creative slot where it's like I don't necessarily have an interest in being the leader of the creative team and having my egomaniacal control over everybody. But I do have an interest in working in small teams, again, from the bottom up to do things that are much less polluted or corrupted. Mm. And I found that that's been, again, it's not like you've got to find your a way that you make your work not work at all, right? It just fuels your passions so that 
you should create work in your life that doesn't drain your energy every day. It's not like you've gone to working behind the cash register and you're exhausted or you're, you know, working in some warehouse and you just go home and you're just exhausted because it's draining your energy. You should find work that gives you energy. And I'm sure that you've written books where it's just like every day you're just like, yes, yes, this is outstanding and I'm getting more out of this day after day. So I'm, again, ups and downs. It's not like it's always ascending, but it's going to be a gradual <laughs> roller coaster. Yeah. So, so your yeah. your film projects come out of your essays. Then you you have an idea, Late, you flush it yes. out as an essay, and then if it starts to take shape in your mind visually, you might you might look into filming it. Is yes, that what? And that's what happened it, with this. Not with Shamans of the Global Village, but it does happen with my shorter form projects. Because, mm. you know, we've made, I've made this feature film, Transmutation. We have the show, Shamans of the Global Village. Those are the longer form projects. And right. then I have essays I write that turn into shorter form projects. And that that's way, that way you can write an essay, speak it out, and it's two days of work rather yeah. than two months of work to make a short film. Because some, like, if you're going to make something and it's going to be high production value, the amount of work that goes into really beautiful art is very monotonous and time consuming. Yeah. And um, sometimes the thing I guess I could struggle with is that seeing you do it because you're process oriented, not goal oriented and you love it and it is your drug, but it's not like you're doing it for some great reward because, you know, most of my work is very still obscure and mm. I, I would do it if three people watched it or else it, or even if it was like three million people watched it. But, so for people who are listening to this, who want to um, check out some of your spoken word essays, what would you recommend? I, I saw that they're up on your website. Uh, is there Are there any that you think are particularly good introductions to your work that you want to yeah, set well, a hook somewhere? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> you know, on this front, like I don't really, it's funny, dude, people tend to really like what they're good at. And I, I am not good at social media. So I call it anti-social media. You know, I've never really had a big following on social media. Or I've just really like, you have to put so much time and effort into those things. So I've, I, to this day, I am very much not a fixture on social media. I have like a Twitter, a Facebook and an Instagram, and they're all just like zeroed out. So I, I would recommend that people, yes, just go to nilesheckman.com to find me. And I have a series of, yes, documentaries, essays, and podcasts on the website. But from the standpoint of, um, you know, essays, uh, I just did an essay on something called Crossing the Time Wealth Threshold, which is a private essay. I, some of my, half of my essays are released publicly and half of them are private for members. But that's the dynamic of like becoming time rich in your life. Like I think you very much probably are, Chris. You know, neither of us have a slave job at the moment where we can not meet at Friday at, at what, 11 o'clock in, in the afternoon on Friday or 11 o'clock in the morning on a Friday is a pretty much a luxury in itself where we could schedule time to do this. Hmm. So there's that, for example, or I've done, you know, numerous essays on, on um, just aspects of like spiritual philosophic life. You know, I think that if somebody's really developed, they just have such profound and interesting things to say about life as a whole. And sometimes I will call myself like the student of life. So these are just essays on life without being you know, so pretentious about it. Try not to not be on my high horse or soapbox, but just sharing like insights, you know, because it's like I think the thing about like spiritual practice or like even esotericism, which just means the inside is like I constantly feel like I know a lot and absolutely nothing at the same time, you know, and that's the, that's to always stay humble and to like, yeah, ego reduction where you realize like. You are just this little kind of chess piece on the chessboard of reality, but that's not exclusively all that you are. You know, you are a much larger part of what you could be said as your higher self. But to to have a, a, a realization and connection that there's more beyond just the material form is a beautiful thing. 
And however you want to, whatever framework you want to put that in, I found that valuable because I do think that when I get insights or what might call what you might call gnosis, I do find that that comes from places you wouldn't otherwise expect. Some of which you could say could arguably be your higher self when you just get creative insight from dreams or synchronicity or symbolism. So I put a lot of that into the essays. Mm. But yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I've I, I just. I've noticed that you didn't answer my question about okay, your own yeah. psychedelic experiences. And if that's because you yes. don't want to talk about them, that's totally cool. No, abs dude, absolutely. I, I will happily talk about them. Yeah. All right. Um, well, you know, I didn't. It's a good point. I think I hadn't had. I think we get to a point where, in, again, in this dynamic of what's called mind and heart and will, it's like what we think, what we feel and what we do. And the, the mind is very male and the heart is very female. And then will is kind of like what we actually do, how we how we actually what choices we actually make in life based upon what we feel and what we think, what we feel and what we think. Um, I had not had any direct psychedelic experiences at some point when I had originally started the podcast. But then just because of certain guests that came out of the podcast and just because of certain opportunities, I had always liked the psychedelic salon with Lorenzo Haggerty, who's just a very sweetheart old hippie guy that runs this amazing podcast called The Psychedelic Salon. I'd listened to The Psychedelic Salon without actually having any experiences. And it was one of those things where, you know, on the rare, rare occasion I've drunk too much alcohol, I'm not like a mean drunk or anything. And you say how like certain substances will bring out something within you and kind of amplify it. I will say that I think the first time I had had a really beautiful psychedelic experience, it might have been related to something at Burning Man. I think it was LSD at Burning Man where I was laying out on a trampoline after taking probably the traditional 60s. What was the heroic dose of LSD in the 60s? 350 mics or something? Yeah. And I, I took to probably about that and I laid out on a trampoline all night and then proceeded to melt through the trampoline down into the playa and just dematerialized into the playa floor. You know, and that experience was so beautiful, beautiful, beautiful LSD that it just really concretized things that I had further hoped and dreamed that they would be. And, mm. you know, from, again, this will be a mirror of what's inside you. I, I have not to this date had any bad trips, quote unquote, or really negative experiences. And again, I, I would always advocate that people do their research and take their time. And if somebody is grossly mentally unstable, it's like, these things probably are not for you, sure. But you can only heal you. So for me, I think I had a lot of, pretty good stair steps so that, so that when I did actually have will experiences, when I, when I will engage to take the medicine or to take the substance, it did show me, it did like kind of, again, chrysanthemum me open even more and then kind of led me further down the path. And then sub since then, of course, with, with, with each episode of the show, I have taken the substance, you know, at the end of the episode. So 5-MeO-DMT is so staggeringly profound, the experience. I mean, I could BCAD my entire life around what happened at the end of the first episode of the show because um, you know there's there's two primary types of DMT NNDMT which is in ayahuasca and then 5-MeO DMT which is very much a different component they're actually quite different the two chemical components but 5-MeO DMT is what's in the Sonoran Desert toad the glands of the toad which we highlight in the first episode of the show and that medicine is so staggeringly profound I didn't even take that high of a dose. But like within five minutes, it was just like, you know, I have a, I could spend two hours trying to even put into language what the experience was. And it was so unbelievably beautiful and life changing. So in that regard, I, I very much hope that people have reverence and respect for these things as much as I do and appreciate them, but realize also that they're very serious stuff. 
and that I always have a lot more to learn. You know, there's we, we would like to do an episode of the show with the Bowiti tribe in Africa on Ibogaine. They work with Aboga. And apparently Aboga, you know, I've never taken it, but it shows you like, it gives you this life review. It's like a 24 to 48, 48 hour experience where it just shows you like every single thing shit you've ever done to anybody else, any pain you've caused anybody, anything you've hurt, anybody you've hurt. And it just shows it to you and makes you face it and like transition through it. So it's like apparently, you know, five years of psychotherapy in, in one night. It can be. But again, you have to be willing to heal yourself if your life's a mess. So you can only heal you ultimately. So that's one of the things about if we did a season plan for the show, which we have on the website about certain episodes that we'd like to get to. Um, these are kind of potential future episodes we'd love to highlight. There's a lot of... Um, I guess you could say, I don't want to say controversy, but it's a very debatable thing about the Amanita muscaria mushroom being a corporealization of Santa Claus. Have you heard about any of that? Yeah. yeah so we, I, I wrote an essay about that for the well, Spanish High Times. Matt. Oh, there you go, buddy. So, you know, we Can could do know. an episode on yeah. that dynamic. Very interesting. There's the flying the reindeer. The, yep. You know, yeah, there's a lot of interesting witches. You know why witches ride brooms? That's part of that, too. Mm. Amanita muscaria. Because oh, really? They, they made you, because Amanita is toxic if you take it orally. Um, so they would uh, cook it down and throw in toads, right? Why toads? You know, mm. ufatinin, and um, and uh, they sort of boil this down, and then you couldn't take it orally; it would kill you. But they learned that you could absorb it through the mucosa, you know, basically through skin and, you know, like cocaine through your, your mucous membranes. Yeah. Um, and so they had like a, a phallus that they would dip in and then rub on their vagina. And that's how they absorbed the the substance. And then, of course, when witches who were essentially European shamans and healers, um, when they were demonized by the invading Christians, uh, then we got the old witch's brew and, you know, boiling yeah. down children and all that bullshit. Apparently, but, yeah. I've heard, too, that there was a staggering correlation between empowered matriarchal women who were landowners who, surprise, surprise, were accused of the church of being witches. And so then they would, surprise, surprise, because so much land. of it was commercial, they'd yeah. take the land. Yeah. Yeah. yeah same thing with, uh, you know, marriage. If you're you had to be married because if your children were not baptized and part of the church, then when you died, the church would take your property. Your children couldn't inherit your property. Yeah. It's all fucking scam. It's all Well, scam. it's all. And, you know, this laid in a podcast conversation, I could say that without controversy, I think, in an audience as sophisticated as yours, Chris, that all religion is based off of astrotheology astro astro and shamanism. And that shamanism is just as old as the hills. And the difference in the two is that one is about a direct personal esoteric experience and the other is about outsourcing your stuff to a series of hierarchical, externalized, corporeal deities. Yeah. And, and one of them's easy and one of them's a challenge and very difficult and takes a huge amount of will engagement to, to transit through. Yeah. And the phrase you used is excellent, hired out, right? Like you're, you know, it's like we don't clean our own house. We we have some someone come in and clean it for us. We don't cook our own food. Have someone come in and do it. We don't we don't attend to our own spiritual education or advancement or 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 um, cleanliness. We 
pay money to the church, to an institution that, you know, takes care of everything for us. I think it's interesting, you know, getting around to this question of calling psychedelics medicines again. I think it's very interesting that in most shamanic traditions, as far as healing goes, um, the, the typical sequence of events is that someone comes to the shaman complaining of, of um, a health issue and health uh, could be mental, could be physical, and is generally yeah. both. Yeah. The shaman listens, uh, asks a bunch of questions, and then says, okay, come back in a few days. And it's the shaman who then takes the substance and enters into the other world in search of answers to what's the problem uh, with this yeah. person. And I think it's just so interesting how, you know, so many of these instant shamans that we were warning against earlier, they think that the essence of healing is to give the drugs to the person who's suffering, where in shamanic cultures, that's not generally how it happens. The shaman takes the drugs in order to access the realm in which these answers can be found. And, you know, a shaman is someone who moves between worlds from one world yeah. to the other. And can bring back knowledge. It's like someone who remembers their dreams, you know, that they bring back important information. Yeah, I think of it as almost like transiting up a ladder of spirit, you know, to higher vibrational or higher density space. And if you, you know, back to that mindset of like the higher self, some groups call it like your higher guardian, uh, your holy guardian angel, which is like just this, again, larger in the fractal holography of that experience, which sounds kind of kooky, but it ultimately is a dynamic of like, accessing a higher dimensional or higher, higher vibratory space, again, without, you know, new ageiness aside, that's what the, that's what's going on is that the shaman is accessing the, the realm where of, of more of unity and monad or oneness or, or connection, which is a higher state of consciousness. And they're finding the, you know, through their higher self, your higher self and kind of defragging or diagnosing the system. Mm. And then sometimes that can be a multiple stage process where they take the medicine themselves, they go and see what's wrong with the patient. They analyze and, you know, figure it out. And then at some point, maybe the patient will also take the medicine or maybe they don't need to. But there is usually, again, the inside is the cause, the outside is the effect. So usually there's always something going on with the patient that is a legacy of something mental that is then manifesting in the material. So if somebody has a cancer on their back, you know, it's not just the fact that they were, you know, eating shit food and, you know, pouring, you know, glucose inducing stuff down their gullet for years or taking up bad habits or eating frankenfoods. It might be that they have a huge family trauma going on with something from their past. And that's literally manifesting on their external or in, inside themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. We see this so. in, in like Gabramate's work with, uh, um, you know, he he traces basically all disease back to childhood trauma. Mm. And and I think there's a a lot to be said for that. One interesting reflection of this idea of the of the healer altering consciousness in order to access information to help the the patient or you know whatever we're calling the the supplicant. Um you probably know this story, but in the early days of LSD when it was still uh legal uh, doctors could order it from the Sandoz company in Switzerland, just mm -hmm. and they would send it to you. And the main use of LSD, I'm talking about the late 50s, early 60s, was for psychiatrists and psychologists 
um, to take it themselves in order to experience a psychotic state so that they could better relate to their psychotic patients. Huh. Yeah. And it was called, it was, it was considered a psychotomimetic and that was its main use yeah. for years. Yeah. I think that, you know, looking back on that and having entered those states myself, it's incredibly admirable and, and courageous, you know, that some straight laced medical doctor would take a heroic dose of LSD and basically lose, um, you know, a firm grip on reality for eight hours so that they would then be better able to understand their psychotic patients. And that's, it's just fucking beautiful. It's an act of will. It's a pretty profound, you know, leap to do that. There's some other story in that regard, too, of a, a, somebody that had a, sh a shamanic ancestry or was actually a practitioner themselves in an indigenous context that was actually brought to a modern, like, you know, nutty nut house with like full on straitjacket rubber rooms. And it, they were they were through the hallways of, you know, the schizophrenics, like deep schizophrenics. And they were able to just tell that these people are extremely, you know, spiritually connected to getting some sort of information that they're not just they don't have a framework on dealing with. Yeah. Right. And so it, that's the mental health aspect is that I think in a lot of ways, our culture is great. In a lot of ways, it's very, very sick. And we see people that, you know, we see tent cities of homeless people, most of which have just had a series of mental illness their whole life. And that if we had a context of dealing with them in a more mature way, rather than just, you know, throwing them under the bus, that's a context of the, what I think a mature culture realizes. And we have a lot of maturing to do as a culture. We're still very much in neoteny, which is, you know, children in adult meat suits. Yeah. But, you know, steps along the way, for sure. It's like nobody's perfect. Then that's why I guess we could say the, you know, again, back to the slight marketing phrase of modern shamanic resurgence is that just the general populace is, is or at least people that have some interest in listening to this conversation. I know it seems like maybe for every person that listens to this, there's a thousand other people that could give a shit. But the amount of people that are interested in something that is in the realm of a higher state of interest or insight or consciousness, um, there is a larger percentage of what seems like that's going on these days, which is encouraging. I, I think the future is always simultaneously seeming like it's getting worse and getting better. Some things get better, some things always, some things get worse. Mm -hmm. So I always look at that from the proactive, like glass half full approach. <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah. Um, yeah. Listen, this has been fantastic. I'm really glad we did this, and and I yeah, man, I really appreciate your um, your patience there while I tried to get my technical stuff sorted out. I I was wor I'm working with a new computer that I just hooked up last night, so I don't know what dials needed to be adjusted, but I'm glad we finally got got it working. Yeah, I appreciate your patience too, man. That's awesome. I I really uh, I've always uh, appreciated your outputs, Chris. So it's it's a pleasure to speak to you directly, uh, finally as well. So thank you for that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm going to post this right away. So hopefully you'll get some people listening to your essays uh, within a few days here. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's great. And anytime you want to come on my podcast, man, you're you're totally welcome. I'd love to have you. So if you ever feel like hopping on as a guest, just shoot me a. And maybe we'll schedule it. It's nice to kind of break it up over a few months. So it's not just like we talked to each other once and then once and then didn't speak for another year. So maybe uh, regardless, I'll check back in with you in a few months and we can have you on my show. That sounds good. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, don't wait too long because once I get in the van, then I, I don't. I'm not doing anything like this. So it's while I'm here. I'm here through May. So oh, okay, yeah, maybe we'll do it before May if you're up for it. What's your van schedule? Do you hop in the van and then you're gone all summer? Is that yeah. your routine? Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. I, I live half the week in my wife and I live in this 20 foot Airstream Sport because she she lives in her job is in Marin. But we're, our house is over in the East Bay, about an hour outside of San Francisco. So we kind of always do this back and forth. So we live half the week in a very small rig. And it would be so tough to do that full time. But part time, it's it's great. And and you have a kid. Yeah, and we have a kid. And for a while, we had two dogs in the rig, too. Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. But, yeah, and, you know, there's people at the trailer park that live there not because they – it's not, it's, like a, it's not a white trash trailer park. It's a very upscale – you know, $1,500 a month, nice trailer park in Marin County, California. But there are most people live there by temporary choice. But there's a few people that live there by necessity. And, you know, you see that, you know, even you see the struggles of somebody that's, you know, got to live out of their rig permanently. And it looks like, a you know, some hillbilly tenement setup versus our fancy, nice Airstream that is a small Airstream. But, you know, going back to this nice middle class house. So I never underappreciate, like, the resources of what we have. And, um, anyway, that's my blah, blah, blah for the end of this conversation. Yeah. It was no. a pleasure, man. Really fun to chat. <laughs> I, I agree. It's, it's interesting to, to be out like in the sprinter, uh, and come across people who are living full time, you know, on like national forest land or something. Yeah. Uh, it's a very different vibe and, and it definitely is, you know, it, you're like a tourist in your own country in some ways. Yeah. Um, and you see how many people are secretly homeless sometimes, too. Like there, there's a lot of invisible homeless people that aren't in the tent city, but they're in or the tent by the freeway, but they're living out of their cars. And yeah. I would see that when I lived in when I was working on Benjamin Button in Venice, California, um, you know, mm. the, the just those weird tenement rigs. There'd be like an entire street of them behind us while as we're working on like Academy Award winning work. Yeah. There's like homeless tent city behind us so i think that's definitely about, an, it's about to explode i mean you know when the uh, moratorium on evictions expires here in a couple mm-hmm. of months mm-hmm. yeah i think we're gonna we're gonna see ripples there have you seen nomad land you know i'm aware of it i haven't seen it but it looks interesting yeah i mean I, yeah it's so tough it's like i know that i i definitely noticed under trump like trump seems like biff tannen from back to the future too and like that whole dynamic of just like how much can we race to be more like a third world country? I have seen ramifications of that in the Bay Area. You know, you see like the increase of visible homeless people in the Bay Area. And I know that I saw, I heard some story about Boulder as having, you know, a huge explo- a mm. visible explosion of homeless people. Mm. So I think that, you know, in order to, uh, it's like things sometimes sadly have to get worse before they get better. And sure as shit, they've been getting worse. So. Yeah. I think that some part of the revolution will not just be all negative. It'll be like slow moves towards actually getting our shit together and thinking logically and doing logical things. So, well, yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of what you were saying earlier plays into that, right? This, um, you know, I, I, I think there, there are two aspects to wealth. Your, your, your essay about the time wealth continuum. And, you know, one of my favorite, sayings goes back to Henry David Thoreau, who said a man's wealth is best measured in the things he can do without. Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, as the American dream becomes uh, more and more inaccessible to people and they realize like, I'm never going to have the money my parents had, then they rethink things. And like, well, maybe what if I live in a big house with four of my best friends 
What if we like share a washer and dryer? We don't all need a washer and dryer. What if we share a couple of cars? What what if we decrease our footprint financially, carbon, you know, in, in so many ways? What if I don't need to have kids? I could like help my buddy and his wife raise their kid when they want to go away for the weekend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there are ways sharing things actually makes us happier and is cheaper. Shocker. Yeah. Yeah. It's like very much more European, isn't it? And logical. And that's the dynamic of just, I think the twilight days of American empire is not like the road zombie apocalypse, but it's a slow kind of peak oil decline of just more getting back to more chopping wood, carrying water logic of what you just talked about. That's what my, that's what we're doing is I, uh, you know, we're, we're in a house where I'm inheriting my parents' house and we've built them what's called in California an ADU. You know, it's an accessory dwelling unit. And we're doing like what Asian cultures have done, have always done. We're like grandma lives with the, you know, the multi-generation living and like right. more rational use of resources. So that's what we're being forced into. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. yeah, we're being forced into the best situation. You know, your yeah. your daughter gets the benefit of knowing her grandmother your mother gets the benefit of having the granddaughter around. You get the benefit of being able to take off and, you know, have, know she's with someone you trust. And, I mean, it, it, it really works. This whole symbiosis is the future. Totally, man. Well, this has been a pleasure. It's been an honor chatting with you, dude. I've, I've uh, really enjoyed it. Me so, too. Cool. Yeah. All right, everybody. Fun. Go to com and check this dude out. And can where can they download the or stream uh, shamans of the global village. Oh yeah, we're still recording. Um, so yeah, it's uh, the show is at shamansofthegloballvillage dot com, and yeah, I'm at nileshackman dot com. I don't do any anti social media, so find me on none of it. But you can find me on those two websites. All right, All right. thanks, All right. brother. Bye. Okay, mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of t shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, Civilized to Death design. They're all Civilized That's right. to Death. We have stickers. And car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart 
heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say It's a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground